when I tell you I want to make the world's greatest podcast, I'm fucking serious. And I'm willing to direct all my attention and resources, financial or otherwise, to that one endeavor. If I do that, I'll get everything I want out of life that I deserve. Will I be the richest person in the world? No, but I won't need for anything. And so that's what I mean. It's like, so if you're asking like physically, where do you put your money? Like I told you, I listened to Charlie Munger. What is Charlie like? This is another thing that came from the dinner, right? That he said, that's really fucking everybody underestimates. And he's like, we made a ton of money because we always had cash and we could move fast. And he was telling stories about literally getting a call on Saturday morning. Oh, you want this asset? that you know is worth a couple billion dollars that's blowing up inside this other company, we need $450 million on Monday morning. And on Monday morning, Warren Buffett sent that wire without even a fucking, e- not even a contract, not an email. And he's like, oh yeah, we made you know a couple billion dollars on that deal. And so my whole thing is just like, what I should do right now is the audience, reinvest in growth as much as possible, and then just sit here and wait for a fat fucking pitch and a great opportunity. Hello again and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen and I don't know much, but I have some very smart friends. And if you listen to this podcast, then no matter who, where, or when you are, you do too. Together, we'll all explore how technology, investing, and entrepreneurship can create a brighter, more abundant future. Today, I have brought back David Senra and Mitchell Baldrige to the show. David is the host of the Founders Podcast, where he studies biographies of history's greatest entrepreneurs. It is currently one of the top podcasts in the world. He is blowing up. He's had an incredible year, and that continues. We talk all about that today. He recently met Charlie Munger. That's where we start the show. He shares what happens, what he's learned from Charlie. His life has just totally changed, and I'm so excited about what is going to continue to happen and how we're all going to get to see it and be a part of it. Mitchell Baldridge is the founder of Baldridge Financial. He's an accountant and a certified financial planner. I've had him on the show too. Previously, he's a good friend. He is building an empire of financial businesses. And today we dive into the founding and the growth of RE Costseg, a new business in his portfolio. It's a really fun conversation. There's a lot of giggles when these guys get together and we have a great time. I hope you enjoy joining us. This podcast is one of a few projects I work on to read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early stage tech companies. Please visit ejorgensen.com. Our conversation starts shortly. Until then, here is this episode's sponsor. And if you're pulling out your phone to skip them, that's another great opportunity to leave a quick review. It really does mean so much. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank a new presenting sponsor for the coming year, Scribe Media. To provide the most fun and useful messages for you, we're actually going to have a series of mini interviews with Miles Rote from Scribe. So let's welcome Miles to our crew at Smart Friends. I want to start by giving you the chance to sort of introduce yourself and your role at Scribe, and then we'll dive a little deeper into what Scribe is. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, really excited to be here. So my name is Miles Rote, and I am the author strategist at Scribe Media. Here at Scribe, we help executives, entrepreneurs, business leaders, thought leaders write, publish, and market their books. And I am the author strategist here, so I help folks understand the best way forward when it comes to publishing their book, even if it's not with Scribe pointing them in the best direction, right? Because publishing has changed a lot recently and there's a lot of options. So finding the best home for your book is is important and that's my role here at Scribe. So at Scribe, we are the intersection of self-publishing and traditional publishing. So it's like self-publishing in that the author 
owns all of their IP. They keep all of their intellectual property so they can do anything with the content of their book. They can give their book away for free. They can sell merchandise. They can own the audio book and do anything that they want with that. And it's like, oh, and they also, of course, keep 100% of their royalties. Usually with traditional publishing, you're making less than a dollar per book after you've paid back your advance from book sales. And with uh, Scribe, you're keeping 100% of your royalties. So oftentimes authors are making seven or $8 for every book they sell. And then it's like traditional publishing in that you're getting the same level of professionalism as a traditional publisher. So when it comes to the book design, the interior design, the publishing imprint and the credibility and authority that comes with an imprint uh, from a publisher who has published a lot of books, you're going to get that from Scribe. So it's that intersection of self and traditional publishing. Yeah, I love that it's the all of the quality of the product of traditional publishing, which no traditional publisher would admit to, but you have world-class designers and proofreaders and editors on your staff there. And so there's no sacrifice in quality. If you're considering publishing a book, I highly recommend getting on a call with Miles. He'll give you great advice on your options and pathways, no matter what you want to do. To get connected with him, email miles.rote, that's R-O-T-E, at scribemedia.com and put smart friends in the subject line. That information is also in the show notes. If you're on my email list, you can just reply to an email and I'll send a warm intro between you and Miles. You can learn more at scribemedia.com. Now with both ears and everything in between, please enjoy this extremely wide-ranging and giggly conversation arriving in three, two, one. Okay, so you really want me to start with Charlie? Yeah, let's not be bashful and bury the lead. Like, David, you got to just give us the... We won't be able to focus on anything else until you give us the Charlie story. So we got to just start there. Okay, let me pull up the notes to some of the stuff I can't say. Because <laughs> Charlie is exactly as he appears at the meetings and online, completely unfiltered. I think in my post, I said he was ferociously intelligent. That's 100%. He's exactly as I pictured him to be, considering I've read like every single book that I could find about him. I've watched like all his speeches, you know, I've gone through poor Charlie Salmonac a bunch of times. It was just unbelievable. Like, I still can't believe somebody, I just saw one of my mentions on Twitter, they're like, you know, this picture looks like a dream or something like that. The actual like composition of the, the photo. And I was like, dude, I still can't believe it happened. So for people that don't know, wind up, getting the opportunity to have dinner at Charlie Munger's house. I got to spend three hours with him. I got to go through his library. You could ask him whatever question you want. Charlie's just so you know, is not going to ask you any questions. <laughs> it's just like, it's the Charlie show. It's like prompt him up and we'll see where he goes. I guess like the main takeaway for me was just like this, the same thing happened where I got to spend three hours with Charlie. And then a few weeks before that, I got to spend two hours at lunch with Sam Zell. And like Sam was like sitting directly across from me just me, Sam, and my friend Rick. And you same thing. He was telling stories. You can ask me any questions you want. And what I took away from those that over five hours of experience with these two multi-billionaires, Sam's like 81, Charlie's like 99, is I get back and I'm like, oh, I'm definitely on the right path. Like the amount of business historical knowledge that both of them had, there was not one thing. Like so far, I think I've spent what, six years on Founders Podcast. I'm going to hit about 300 bucks soon. That's over 100,000 pages. Who knows how many hours, right? I literally could not tell them one thing that they did not already know. And the crazy thing about Sam Zell, and I know we're supposed to be talking about Charlie, because I'm about to release an episode on the lunch with Sam Zell, hopefully like in a week or two, is not only like I try to bring up like some obscure guy that I read about 
I would bring up his name. He'd be like, oh yeah, I read the book. I know the company name. He knew the outcome. The dude, considering like how obsessed I am with everybody, like knowing who Edwin Land was, the fact that he was the founder of Polaroid and a guy that Steve Jobs learned a ton about, used a lot of his ideas. And the crazy thing is I've read five, I think there's five biographies on Edwin Land. I've read all of them. I read three of them twice. I think I've done six or seven episodes on them. Sam Zell was telling me Edwin Land stories I didn't even know. Like he was in law school with the daughter of Edwin Land's patent attorney. I think there's something to be said for just being there in the moment. (laughs) You retain a different. Yeah. Well, we talk about this a lot, David, like the idea that these biographies are like revisionist history. They're written, they're spelled out carefully. I wonder what like hits the cutting room floor, like all the good stuff that never gets written down would be amazing. So we talk about how crazy intelligent at 99 years old, like you're going to have some kind of cognitive decline. Everybody is. And all I could keep thinking is like, I even yelped one time. The good thing is like the dinner starts and we, we get to Charlie's house and behind him, we're in his library, right? And so I could see all the books that I had the advantage because I was like starstruck. Like, I guess I should back up for people to know. It's like, I literally look at Charlie like the wise grandfather I never had. Like I've taken a handful of his ideas and I'm just running, I'm just using his ideas and a combination of other people's ideas. He's like, oh, that's a good idea if Charlie Munger says, it's most like a good idea if Charlie says it's a good idea. How many businesses and how many founders has he observed? I'll just go down the list. And so one of my favorite things that he ever said is that he says, in business, we find that the winning system either maximize, goes ridiculously far in minimizing and are maximizing one or a few variables. It's one of my favorite of his you, ideas, yeah. He's talking about Costco. Then he also tells you, hey, become friends with the Amanda Dead. It's like, you're going to get through life a lot better. If you can understand, I'm going to use one of Eric's maybe favorite word, leverage. He's like, learning from history is a form of leverage. So use the minimize or maximize one or two variables, right? So this is a combination of, and this is something I wrote him in advance. Minimize and maximize one or two variables, become friends with the eminent dead, take a simple idea and take it really fucking seriously. The idea of learning from the past, of transmitting valuable information from one generation to the next is as old as humanity. And then he says, find what you're best at. Oh, aim for durability, right? Do something for an extreme long time because knowledge, interest, money, everything compounds. So you'll get all the benefits are, you know, 10, 20, 30 years in the future. And then find what you're best at and keep pounding away at it forever. It's like, if you look at those five ideas, it's like the combination of that is like, oh, that's exactly what I'm doing with Founders Podcast and having the dinner with him and lunch with Sam. It's like, oh, it's not that you make billions and billions of dollars and then learn all this shit. It's like, they started studying this intently. Sam was reading biographies and autobiographies when he was like a teenager. When he was in law school, he was reading Zeckendorf's biography, which is this real estate developer that he, he's like, I found an idea in there in Zeckendorf's biography when I was like 20 and I use it throughout my life. Same thing with Charlie Moore. Charlie Moore, by the time he was like eight or nine, Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin had already become his heroes. He'd been reading their biographies, studying like the information they had. And so the, the benefit I had is that this started out in Charlie's library. So Andrew Wilkinson and Chris Sparling are the founders of Tiny. A lot of people on the internet will know who they are. They're huge supporters and fans of Founders Podcasts. They're the ones that made this happen. And they've met him a bunch of times. And so this is how starstruck I was. We're sitting there and we're in like almost like a little semicircle. It's only like four or five of us. It's not a big group at all. And we're all like gathered around Charlie. And I'm looking, I'm like, I'm in Charlie Munger's library. I'm in his house. What the fuck is happening right now? I literally said (laughs) nothing. I'm just staring. I'm like, I see you on TV, man. Like I've seen you. I've watched how many hours of your meetings. How did you get here? Like, how am I here? I have a question. What's his, uh, can you set the scene for us? Like, what is his, what's the vibe of his house? What's it like? Is it like cluttered, genius, messy, like old school? Like, what's it like? 
first of all, it's a nice neighborhood, but you have no idea from the outside that a multi-billionaire lives there. So he is what he says he is. This idea where like uh, when Warren bought, <laughs> when Warren bought the private plane for Berkshire, Charlie nicknamed the plane the indefensible because he doesn't like spending money. He just like, he's dead serious about this. When he talks about control your cost at the end of one of the last things we were talking about after we had dinner is he was like, he loves a deal. He's like, look at this shirt. <laughs> I think he bought like, everyone was like, you paid like $12, like 10 years ago. And he's just like, you can't buy the shirt cheaper than this. <laughs> he's just like, cause he was also telling me, he'll tell you the people he admires. He mentioned them over and over again. And one of his favorite founders of all time is Jim Cynical. He has like this irrational love of Jim. And so do I like think about what he's built in the economic surplus that Jim's very unique business model has given to what hundreds of millions of people. I, I always tell the story where my wife's family has been a Costco member for 27 consecutive years. Think about how good your fucking product has to be for people to, it's not like it's an auto renew. Like, you know, if you guys are Costco members, like you got to go back in there and be like, I want this again. Take I my money Costco. again. I wear my Costco yeah. sweatshirt to Costco and I'm like, hey, big fan. <laughs> I love, and I love Jim Sinego because I love anybody who like threatens to kill his executive team every time they try to raise the price of the hot dog. There's literally like a headline, like every three years or so, like someone suggests taking the hot dog to $2 instead of one fifty. Jim Sinego's like, I will fucking kill you. Shut up. <laughs> You're fired. Mitchell, you got to explain why you said the viral Charlie Munger tweet is in hot Costco hot dog territory, because I don't think many people are going to get that. <laughs> so that was back when Luna... Te- Luna Terra Collapse, yeah. The, yeah, when Tether depegged and Luna wound all the way down, and I guess that was how long ago? It, it was a simpler time. But like, yeah, the I posted a picture of the Costco hot dog that said the last remaining stable coin. I went to dinner. When I got back, it had 400 likes. And then when I went to bed, it had a thousand likes. And then when I woke up, it had 8,000. And by the next morning, it it went to 20 and it it wound up somewhere around 200,000. And kids I went to elementary school were were, (laughs) like texting me going, oh my God, you're on the internet? What the hell? So your book is most likely to go viral. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a weird experience, but yeah. So you had David Trung helped you write that post, right? What did Trung teach you in writing that post or what would you have written versus what did Trung write for you? He says he doesn't get any credit for it, which I think it's a lie. That's actually- Why didn't you ask me? I could have helped you. (laughs) I'm pretty good. So there's an interesting (laughs) thought because I think what you just talked about, we never circled back on your ideas like you know, most of history is revisionist, the winners to the victor come the spoils, they get to tell the stories. And so something you, all three of us talked about, I think online and privately, it's like, you're. All, I'm always looking for like the idea behind the idea. They're telling a story. I have no idea if the story is true or not, but like, what is the principle or the idea that I can pull away from, from that? And so this whole thing with Trung and, and the Charlie Munger dinner is like, one of the most interesting things I learned from spending three weeks reading and rereading Paul Graham's essays, it's episode 275 of Founders, in case you haven't listened to it. I know Eric listened to it because he called me driving back in the snow and he's like, dude, that line was so good. I wanted to pull over and write it down. The idea that a great product is better than it has to be, but the whole idea behind it. But one of my favorite ideas I've been thinking about nonstop since that happened, and that was close to 25 episodes ago. So, you know, a couple months is Paul Graham had this weird, like, first of all, he's just an amazing writer and a very clear thinker. And he had this thing I've never heard of before that he's called, he calls it conversational resourcefulness. And I was like, Paul, what the hell does that mean? And he's like, he noticed an interesting positive correlation between the founders that were easy to talk to and the performance of their company. 
And then he also noticed the same thing where it's like, if I'm meeting with a founder and I have a hard time talking to them, that positively correlates with a bad company performance. And he's trying to figure out in this essay, like what is happening? And he realizes like, oh, the difference was what he was picking up is like, he called it conversational resourcefulness was that the great founders, you have to tell them something once and they will understand all the implications of what you're saying, even if they're unstated. And you'll also see the real-time actions where it's like great founders, he has a conversation, Paul interests them to an investor. He's like, I can set it and forget it. I know that guy or that girl is coming back with the money, right? There's a conversa- level of conversational resourcefulness. And so I've been obsessed with the idea. So I was sitting here thinking, I was like, okay, I already knew what the title of the episode was going to be. And I was like, if I'm scrolling through a podcast player myself, because I always look at things like as a podcast fan, like a podcast fanatic way before I had my own. And so I always look at it. That's the way my podcast is set up. It's like, what would I want to see? That's why I don't have mid-roll ads. and I don't do all this other shit, right? I don't have intro music, none of that. And I was like, if I scroll through and I see I had dinner with Charlie Munger, they're going to stop. They may not click on it, but like, what the hell is going on? And I see this because the downloads have gone absolutely insane. So one, I have a good title. Two, I have this really great picture. Andrew brought this really fan, his fancy camera and he did this intentionally. This is the thing that I think, you know, people know who Andrew and Chris is, Chris are, they know their company, but being able to talk to them and observe them. And I've told other people, I've told them this to them and to other people. I was like, you guys need to watch how Andrew and Chris move. Like they're make, they're extremely, I always say me and Sam Hinky talk about this a lot. And I talk about this with Patrick from Invest Like the Best too. Like we have this framing of like, who are the smartest players on the board? And what are these smart players on the board doing? And so the way Andrew and Chris move, you're like, oh, these guys know what, like they're extremely intelligent on the little details about how they're moving. So he knew in advance, he's like, dude, I brought the camera. We're gonna get you a really good photo of Chris with you and Charlie Munger. I am not photogenic. I don't look like that in that picture. (laughs) I am. I was like, wow, like I look really good in that picture. So I have a good headline. I have a very unique experience an experience that, you know, people would literally pay millions of dollars for. I have a great photo. I have this weird background of being able to compare what Charlie Munger's telling me with have read 300 something biographies on history of entrepreneurship. So I can, I can place it in a context that's different. And then if you have an audience, a very sophisticated audience, like the audiences that all three of us are building, these are not like average Joes. It's like somewhere, if you need something in your audience, it doesn't matter what it is. There's somebody that's world-class at whatever you need in your audience. And they feel a compulsion to help you because they get so much value from the work that you put out there. So I'm looking at all these things. Like you can't buy these things in a store, but they're assets and they're resources. So how can I take Paul Graham's idea of conversational resourcefulness and show that like, oh, I could put shit together too. And like, I could do this to the advantage and make at the same time, not only... One, I think that if you listen to the podcast, it makes your life and business better. There'll be ideas in there. But also it makes my business way better. I can't, I'm not gonna tell you the, the amount, but like you would be fucking shocked at how many new listeners I got from that. I mean, I was, people know like I was number one in entrepreneurship chart, number five in business, number top 100 in all podcasts in the world. Like shocking, in, insane. People know. So you combine this, so you combine this. And then I, so I, I was like, okay, well, I'm not gonna do this on my own. Like, I don't know shit about Twitter. Like I'm doing okay on Twitter, right? But I have a master and I have like, like Trump fan is like Elon's boy. <laughs> like him and Elon are like tweeting at each other. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and Trung went from like 8,000 or 4,000 followers to 600 something thousand followers. He's got, so I just started talking to him about this and you know, is it, should this be a thread? Should, should this be a long tweet? Like, what should I do here? And it was like a day and a half that went back and forth. Then I was sending him what I originally was going to do. And he's like, 
Trung is nice. So you had to read between the lines. Like, oh yeah, like you know, that's good. Hey, that'd be and cool. Like, but like, what if we totally changed it? <laughs> yeah, 100%. That's exactly what it was. And so we went back and forth. He didn't do any of the editing. Like all the writing was myself, but the framework that he gave me. So that's when I tell him, I, I hit him up. I was like, man, I can't believe this, this, this happened like that. And he's like, dude, I didn't do anything. I was like, no, you, you gave me the framework. And like, you set this up. You definitely did. And then the, what was the, the, what was the, the other asset, just do a long tweet. Don't do that first thing that you were, you sent me. That's fucking terrible. And then like, make it interesting. He I, didn't I, text Elon for you to throw one of this like sideways laughing faces in the, in the comments. <laughs> you know? Like that would no. have been a hookup. No, no. So, um, and he didn't even like edit it or anything, but he just gave me the ideas. Like, this is what's going to work for you. And those long tweets have been working for me very well. Like the past, they're getting a ton. Every, a lot of the stuff I put up is doing really well. And then uh, the other asset that I have is that I don't ever ask anybody for favors. Like ever. I've never sent a cold DM, a cold email. I should. This is a mistake on my start. I don't ask Mitchell for anything. I don't ask Eric for anything. I don't ask anybody for anything. And for this, I was like, listen, man, I'm going to do the Charlie Munger post. Can you guys just boost it? And so I called like, called or text, I don't know, like 10 to 20 influential people. And everybody said yes, because I don't ask for anything. And so that, like, I think two hours after I posted it, Trung texted me, he goes, this thing's going nuclear. Because <laughs> he knows. <laughs> and it went nuclear. I was like, oh. And then I'm in, I'm in a group chat with David and Ben from Acquired. And they're like, oh, it's probably going to get a million views. And then, the, like, the next day I go, it's at three and a half. It's at five. It's at three million on, on LinkedIn. Like, it just went fucking crazy. That's crazy. So tell me about the actual, what about the actual experience? Like, what was, did you go in with, like, questions planned? Was there anything you were like dying to ask him? Another asset. Thank you for the, I didn't even think about that. So I say this over and over again, like Frederick, I think he pronounces his way Gieschen. He's German. I can't even pronounce English. Frederick's a friend of mine. He writes Necker Minds of the Market on Substack. If, yeah, we, yeah, if yeah. you don't mind, Eric, cool. we can link below. Yeah, yeah, He's an incredible researcher, like unbelievable researcher. And he's the one that like watches a ton of these like, uh, He'll go back and watch a ton of the Berkshire Q&As that they do at the meeting. He's been tweeting he consistently. Them it's awesome. Yeah. Forever. He finds like shit that you like happened 15 years ago that you forgot about. And so I hit him up. I'm like, dude, I still don't believe it's going to happen, but I flew all the way to LA in case it does happen. Looks like tomorrow I'm going to have dinner with Charlie Munger. Can you please like, like I obviously read a lot about him, but it's like, give me some good questions. He gave me incredible questions that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. I had this whole notebook saved my phone, never looked at my phone once <laughs> like the entire, <laughs> the entire yeah. time. Cause it goes back to what I was talking about. And then, you know, tell me if we were talking too much about this, because like Mitchell said at the beginning, he's like, <laughs> David could be in here for an hour and a half and not even realize <laughs> that we're not here. It goes back to like, just me not believing that this was happening to the point where like Andrew and Chris have, they have a relationship with Charlie. They've, they probably asked them, you know, hundreds of questions in their life. They they jump right in like old friends. And then I'm still like starstruck, like had an out-of-body experience. And then Andrew looks at me like, jump in. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't just sit there. Like you, you sat here for 10 minutes not saying anything. And then I immediately jump in with the benefit I had is I could see all the books behind Charlie. And I had read a bunch of the obscure biographies because I found them from him. And so it goes back to Mitchell's revisionist history question. I was asking him questions about Henry Kaiser who this guy started 100 companies, built a Hoover Dam, was as famous in his day as like Elon is in our day, built Liberty Ships and all kinds of crazy stuff. And Charlie immediately, like from that question, just goes into like all the stuff Kaiser built, how he was, like 
unbelievable recall. And I yelp out, I go, Charlie, how do you remember all this stuff? He goes, I knew his partner. <laughs> so like to Charlie, it's not history. He was there. <laughs> <laughs> To us, it's history. He was alive. He knew them. He was a young man. I thought it was hilarious. So what is Charlie getting from being friends with Andrew Wilkinson? And like, what is he getting with by connecting to young entrepreneurs today? He likes young, sharp people. He says he invites them to his house for dinner. And if he can't invite them, he will Zoom with them. I saw a setup. Somebody had set up like he's got a camera right next to his chair. I think a lot of people know this but maybe some, some don't like Charlie's been wheelchair bound for like six years. And so like he's sitting in his, his library. And so he's got like a camera here and his, he's got family members and other people there that are, that can help him with like technology. But like in 99, he's still relentlessly curious, still wants to meet intelligent people, still wants to help them. Cause he knows that Andrew and Chris are like, they're building the very version of a version of like Berkshire on the internet. They are way further ahead at their ages than Charlie or Warren were at theirs. So like there, again, that's a perfect example. It's like, I had a very long lunch with Chris. He's super fucking smart, super sharp. And you talk to him, he's like, oh, he's actually one of the few people that can be capable of learning from history. Because Charlie, Charlie and Warren say this over and over again, we're going to tell you these things, guys. Most of you aren't going to use them because you're incapable of learning from history. Charlie and Warren, they're speaking themselves like we are capable of learning from history. When you talk to Chris and Andrew, same thing. Like they're capable of learning from history. They're running that playbook. And so this was the same thing with Sam Zell, where it's like, listen, I think podcasting is the best business in the world. I think it's funny that people think it's like low status. You know, you have like a, in the new Jonah Hill Netflix movie, they say, hey, I want to be a podcaster. And he's laughed at. The New York Times says, just released this article where it's like, girls won't date podcasters. And I'm like, when I hear shit like that, I get like giddy, like a little fucking kid. I'm like, oh, you still don't understand what's happening. You still don't understand this. This is the best job in the world. The most valuable job in the world if you have an engaged, intelligent audience. Not even if, like for the fact that I like to read and make podcasts. So in and of itself, it is, there's no means to an end. It's the end itself. But it's like you have no fucking clue what we're about to do. The businesses that we're going to build and the wealth that is going to come from podcasting because you're still making fun of it, which is exactly what humans do all the time. I was just rereading some past highlights because I did this like 13 or 12 or 13 part series on the early automobile industry. And if you were in 1899, a young man trying to build a car, people fucking laughed at you. They're like, at the time, for every one car on the road, there was 3,600 horses. And so everybody's like, why would you need a car? Just have another horse. They had no fucking idea that this giant, one of the most valuable industries that it will ever be created is happening right in front of you. And you're dismissing it and you're making fun of it. And so human nature never changes. Like, that's just going to happen over and over again. And so Sam Zell, when I'm talking to Sam Zell, he kept asking me questions. He's like obsessed with podcasts. He loves listening to them. He wanted, He's like, why'd you start it? What's the business model behind it? And to the point where he asked so many questions, he was so unbelievably curious about the world around him, just like Charlie Munger is at 99. And these guys have been like that forever. That's why they're successful. Because they're just synthesizing this information and figuring out, understanding the world around them and seeing how they can profit from that. And so it got to the point where Sam was like, dude, you, I literally said, I was like, you were making, you were building businesses and making millions decades before I was born. I need to be asking you the questions, but they're just crazily obsessed with their curiosity and just knowing more about the world around them. So, so you left just kind of feeling like feeling like you're on the right track and energized. Yeah, for sure. Like when I got back home from the Sam Zell launch, I remember telling my wife, I was like, I want that. I want that. That dude hasn't had to work for fucking 30 years, right? He sold his company for $38 billion. And he was rich before that. It's absurd. 
And it's like, yet he's still like, one of the first things we talked about is that, like, he's buying all these businesses. He's doing all these investments. He's like lighting up like a little kid. He's like, I just spent, I don't remember. I, I'm going to make up the numbers because I didn't write them down. He's like, I just spent $300 million for 70, 70% of this company yesterday. And he was just like super excited about it. He was like leaving to go give a speech to entrepreneurs in like London. And then he was going to fly to like, I forgot where else and give another speech. How old is Sam Zell right now? 81. 81. And I go, Sam, why are you doing all this, man? He goes, it's the same reason why I think entrepreneurs write autobiographies when they know they're about to die, like Sam Walton did, like the founder of Ikea did. They all did this, like Steve Jobs did with Walter Isaacson. He's like, I feel it's my obligation. This is what Sam said. It's like, it's my obligation to pass on what I've learned through my career to the next generation. So that's why I do it. He doesn't take money for these fucking speeches. They give him whatever he wants. He comes in on his own fucking private plane on his own dime. So not only is he taking money for it, he's spending, you know, probably $100,000 in jet fuel to get back and forth. <laughs> and when you fly to Europe, who knows what that is, that is, right? He was just flying from Chicago to South Florida. And so I was like, I want to be that excited about what I'm working on, that curious, that hungry to learn till I fucking die. That Sam's like, I'm doing deals till I die. Charlie Munger, I get there the day the SVB shit is happening. I think the odds and that you'll be that excited are pretty high. I hope. I certainly hope so. <laughs> I certainly hope so. So same, same, same thing. Like I, I saw Charlie the day all the SVB stuff was happening. And like he was still like interested in like what's going on in the market. What's happening to all these banks? Dude, it's like if it was just money, they would have stopped. If it was just numbers on the board, they would have stopped a long time ago. They just like the shit that they do. So I tweeted at our friend Chris Powers the other day and was talking about how you worked in relative anonymity for five years. And then in this last year, your life's totally changed. People know who you are. People have seen the awesome work you're doing. You may move, you may not move. Like, What is your life like now that you're having dinner with Charlie Munger as opposed to two years ago when you were just working and no one knew what you were doing? I do... I appreciate what you said, by the way. I'm actually trying to pull it up right now because I thought it was really interesting. So Chris is like a stand-up dude. Thank you for introducing to me. We talk very frequently. I just find him to be a very impressive person. And we had been on the phone for like an hour, just usually about podcasts because he's like taking his podcast seriously. He sees like the value that it applies to... He sees, like if you're on the other side of the fence, like the outside world is making fun of us, which is fantastic. Say it's low status, is fine. I'm saying it's the best job in the world. That's cool. And regardless of what you think, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to do it. But Chris is seeing, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Even something that he was like doing just because he was interested in, didn't really promote that much, has a relatively small but growing audience. He's like, oh, look at the economic impact this is having. Like this is, it, it feels like when you talk to Chris, he realized, oh, I stumbled on a secret. I'm like, yes, you did. And so well, he, imagine how like entrenched his industry is where a bunch of 75 year old deal sponsors who are buying industrial real estate look at guy in his 30s who has done it the right way but but yeah raised hundreds of millions of dollars off of a podcast that's insane it reverses the flow it goes from hey i'm chris this is what i do would you like to invest to hey chris love your podcast love your philosophy on you're building your company where can i wire this five million where can i wire this 10 million where can I, I mean, like, Chris, I think he coined the term trust at scale. He talks about building or I don't know if he coined the term, but I heard him say it. Building trust at scale is what he's doing. And he's doing a hell of a job at it. 
So when I go around and I talk to very sophisticated people that have been building giant businesses on the back of podcasts, they're like, David, take the advice that you give in the podcast, bad boys move in silence, shut up about, they're like, and I'm like, dude, we can yell this. Edwin Lane says the best way to hide an idea is to yell it from the rooftops. He's like, it's, I could say this all the time. They won't do it. The idea that what what Mitchell said, what Chris tweeted after the conversation we had was like, Hey, the other day I talked to founders podcast about what metric he cares about most for the pod. And then he summarized what I said. I, my wording was a little different, he, but this is what he wrote. He goes, none. I don't care about anything but making amazing content people will love. The rest will sort itself out. I use different words, but the idea behind that is... there were It was laced with expletives is what happened. No, I don't. <laughs> you I were don't. screaming the F word. <laughs> no, no, I don't look at metrics. Like what happens is when you log in to, to upload a new episode, you'll see. And I'm usually, I'm always surprised. I'm like, oh shit. But it's, I don't like, oh, like what percent are people finishing or like none of that. I'm going to do what I'm most energized about and enthusiastic and passionate about. That will transform through the medium because audio is straight up energy transmission. I will do it forever and time will carry most of the weight. You know, I'm not gonna be like, oh, this book underperformed. Maybe I don't do books in that category anymore. It's like, I liked it. And so the Mitchell responds to this tweet and he's like, a lot of people will say that they don't care, like what I just said about the metrics, but few will spend five years building one of the best podcasts in the world in anonymity. And then he screenshots the first episode, which came out September 19, 2016. How did we, this discussion even start? You asked a question about, oh, how well, am I you, Yeah. Um, so... I always thought it was a good idea. I thought it made sense to me. It just made logical sense. It's just like when you read biographies, all of history of entrepreneurs learn from people before them. And yet this like very new entrepreneurship industry that is like servicing entrepreneurs with like information. It's like everything is about like what is happening now. Like, let me give you an example. And I don't want to like, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. One thing I learned about from David Ogilvie is he's got this concept of a code of conduct. And he's like, I love gentlemen with brains. When you meet Charlie Munger, you realize he's a gentleman with brains. He's unbelievably smart, but he's unbelievably polite and, and nice. So I'm not going to say what this was. I got invited. This magazine had this like event. I don't like going to fucking group dinners. I'm introverted. I like small, intimate, one, two, three people at the most. Against my better judgment, I went to this thing. And whatever, two hours, I sat there and didn't say a word. So that tells you everything that you need to know. At the end, they're like, hey, we're having these events and these talks and write down on a, a piece of paper or like what they gave us, like who you'd like us to see. Cause like they have these giant events where you can get like the biggest names in business, right? Because of who is putting us on. And they're like, well, who'd you write down? I wrote down Sam fucking Zell because he knows more in his 81 year old fucking brain than every single other person that like every 25 year old founder put together. Like then it goes back to this, like, this is clearly, if you're going to spend time learning from people, are you going to spend, and this is not disrespect to that guy, man, but like he did this long thread about, Hey, you should, we're telling our employees to borrow money and to go into debt and buy equity at an $8 billion valuation of a company that, that is like most likely going to fail. And it's not an insult to him. It's like, dude, if you just look we can at insult the last him, that's fine. I'm bust, cool with that. But no, if you look at the last boom and bust cycle, you would see that this is, there was an idea that was tried before and it doesn't work for X, Y, and Z. Now, did you solve for X, Y, and Z? No, you did not. So it's not going to work again. The same shit that Sam Zell talked about where like he, he'd bring up this idea where you have this fundamental mismatch of people like WeWork, right? Where they like sign 15-year leases. So they have long-term commitments and then short-term customer cycles. He's like, David, that didn't work in 1952 when Richard did it. Didn't work in 1960, did it? And he, he can tell you the year, the fucking name of the guy, the name of the company, and why it didn't work. 
if you're going to innovate, you have to solve for this fundamental mismatch or it's just going to keep replaying over and over and over again. That is my point. So I did not think, I swear to God, I remember I put out episode 30, which is the second time I read Elon's biography. I was like, I'm going to put this out. It's going to be so popular. I'm going to have a built-in audience. No, <laughs> I did not. Like I had, I swear to God, that was like maybe a year into it or whatever. I was like, this is like clearly going to work. It took years and years and years, but I had this delusional belief. I was like, dude, this just makes so much more sense because I don't find smarter shit anywhere than what I find in these books. Yeah. For like, to your point on the podcast, like for context, this, my podcast now just thanks to like a good size sponsor that we just signed that's going to do a full year's deal. Scribe, actually, Scribe will be the episode. This is the first episode they will have sponsored. So I signed a deal with Scribe. Scribe. Thank you, Scrum. I this thought is... I was sponsoring this episode. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I didn't blackmail you into it this time. This is uh, <laughs> this is th- uh, year three, sixty some episodes, a thousand hours, and probably between fifty and a hundred thousand dollars of hard costs before it turns profitable, let alone pays its investment off. Like it's a long slog to create a podcast, but everything after that turning point, I think it just becomes immensely, immensely valuable. But I understand, man, why there's a long tail of small, struggling, hard podcasts. And it's a huge battle to make it that long psychologically and financially to like get through that point. But we all know sort of what's on the other side. And I don't blame people for being like, that is a mountain that I don't want to climb. Like, that's I get it. But that's where all the valuable businesses are built. You know, one hundred percent. But like, easy to do. I think people just competition. I think the pain comes from the mismatch, right? Like, it just looks much easier and cheaper and faster road to success than it is. And people think it's like, oh, well, if I can build a Twitter account, I can build a podcast. And it's like those are different. Those are different things. A Twitter can help you build a podcast for sure, but you have to think of it like building a business, going into the J curve, spending a few years of spending money and time, like playing chicken with failure, knowing that you have to break, you have to persevere long enough to to break through, but that once you do, you have something incredibly valuable. So we do these, like we're doing this like reoccurring meetup on Eric's podcast, right? And I think the main point of the reason we want to do this is because like we're all engaged in the same thing. We're like trying to build a business online. They're different businesses. We have different aims. And so we think, hey, let's get together and not just talk about Charlie Munger's dinner, right? Let's talk about like the stuff that we're doing. And if you don't mind, like, I just want to piggyback on what you just said, where I've talked to a ton of like, I'm in a bunch of like these podcast chat groups, I get a bunch of like DMs or whatever, I'm sure you guys do as well. And specifically for podcast, building an actual podcast, I think what you're speaking about is like, the reason it is so difficult is one, there's no centralized like network pushing you out. There's like no algorithm, right? But two, it's people think it's a thing. And I think it's a medium. They think it's, oh, it's me just shit hanging out my boys, pressing record and I'll just upload it. And then I'll be as famous as Joe Rogan, you know, a few years from now. Like I'm not gonna say who, but Mitchell sent me this podcast. He's like, Hey, they have giant social media followings. They, they're not getting any traction at all with their podcast. Do you mind listening to it? And I listened to it and the diagnosis was clear. It's like, I'm 20 minutes in. I have no idea what the value proposition of what you're doing here. Like treat it like a product and a business, right? Like when you look at how I describe the value proposition of listening to Founders Podcast is in the, is the first sentence in the description. Learn from history's greatest entrepreneurs. If you're an entrepreneur or interested in entrepreneurship, 
I don't have to say anything else with that. And if you don't get it just from that sentence, you're like, there's no point, like you shouldn't be listening. Like it's obvious what the value proposition is, right? And so like, there's a bunch of things, this is what me and Chris have been talking about as well, where everybody skips to like the third or fourth thing. And what do I mean by that? They're like, David, I have a podcast. Or they don't necessarily like say this just directly to me, which is general. It's like, I have a podcast. Okay, how do I grow it? And it's just like, you skipped a bunch of steps. Like, first of all, is the actual content that you're making valuable to other people? You, you can grow a Twitter account because you're asking for somebody's 15 seconds. The tweet is, you can read it 15 seconds. That's not the same thing as asking somebody for an to spend an hour, an hour and a half, two hours with you. That's a completely different value proposition. So is the content good? Most of the time when people say, my podcast is growing, you listen to it and it sucks, right? The second thing is like, they skip over a very important part is the branding. Like this is something me and Mitchell, Mitchell is going to launch a podcast that me and him have talked about for months. It, Mitchell's going to launch a podcast? So Breaking news. We're working on it. But yeah, I record my first one next week. And like, it's a dawning idea of like, how do you make this good enough to be worth listening to? I'm going to suck at it for two years, presumably, or like David got to go build in silence, you know, and David's moat is unbelievable of like the amount of work he does and the amount of traction he has. Like we were talking about somebody else in trying to do a similar idea. And the idea of like, if I started working 70 hours a week to try to do what David does, it wouldn't matter because there's just no way to catch up. Like if you release three a week, you can't catch up. It, it's just impossible. What I would, and if you do three a week, they're not going to be high enough quality. Like I can't, you can't read three books and read to actually understand it well enough and deep enough to explain it to another person in an intelligent manner. So I guess my point is like, this is not just about podcasts. This applies to everything. It's like, is the actual product valuable? For most podcasts, the answer is no. And then people skip over branding. That is so fucking important. Like it, this is what Chris Powers is struggling with because it's like his show. I go, Chris, your show is because he's got like how many entrepreneurs have been building the business for 20 years and he's only 38 or 39 years old. The access, the people he is in his network are fucking ridiculous. So he can get a bunch of high quality people on the show. But I was like, dude, Chris, your show is so much better than your branding. I don't know what the fuck the fort means. I don't like <laughs> and, and that. No, but this is very important in the world of infinite scrolling, right? People are not, they're just going to scroll through. They're not going to sit there and try to figure out what does this mean? Jack Butcher, who I know is doing your stations again for the Bology book, and he did yeah, it for Jack's a fucking genius. Yes. This is he like has the best post on this. this. He has yeah. the best post on this. It's called How to Make a Name for Yourself. Just type in Visualize Value, How to Make a Name for Yourself. I'm sure we'll put it in the show notes as well. And his whole point is like the name, language is a form of leverage. The name in the, this age of infinite scrolling has to do something for the customer, right? This is what I always say where uh, Pat, my friend Patrick is ridiculously good at naming things. There's a handful of podcasts. One, I think Ben Wilson's How to Take Over the World might be the single best podcast title I've ever heard, right? And right up there, I would pit Patrick's Invest Like the Best because the value proposition to the listener is in the fucking title. That's crazy. Mine is in the, the second, the first sentence of the description. And then when he named Business Breakdowns, the name tells you what they're doing. Like, you know what it's about and people skip over that part. And so I would say like spend a ton of time figuring out like how, if I glance at your name, will it transmit some kind of information to me that will first get my attention, but also tell me, oh, this is worth me pausing on a minute and actually looking into. 
I mean, that was part of my motivation for totally rebranding the podcast over the last couple months. Like that, that's an ongoing thing. But yeah, I was two years in, I was like, all right, the podcast product is real. I hate my brand. I never really worked hard on it, like setting it up in the first place. Like I didn't give it a lot of thought. I just like published it. I was like, I now know what this thing is. And I want it to have a brand that I'm proud of that communicates like what the product has turned into, like what the substance of the podcast is about. So let's do it and like invested in this process. But it's totally sort of changed my relationship with the product and how excited I am to share it. And I get amazing feedback on it. I feel like it just changes how people feel when they're listening to it and what they are getting out of it, even if all the words in the episodes are the same, right? Like the wrapping paper matters so much to the experience. It's a double, your, your name is a double entendre. If you think about it, it's like, okay, it's t- description of what you're doing. You're just hanging out and recording conversation with your smart friends. But because of the parasocial relationship of podcasting, which is so one, somehow deeply misunderstood and still underrated. It's like, oh, Eric's hanging out with his smart friends. I get to l- listen in. Now I'm part of the smart friends. I mean, smart friends is like the value proposition of podcasting as a whole, right? Like, yeah, if at the end, you can hold the identity of being a smart friend <laughs> like, or the best podcast get to go like with Pete Holmes has, you made it weird and his listeners get to be weirdos, you know, or like oh, yeah. <laughs> if you can become a part of the community that the podcast builds, if you can be a smart friend at the end of it, that's yeah, what's, what's shepherds like arm, arm cherries. <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. but people do that on purpose. You build this kind of meta world or world building in podcasts is or world building in storytelling and in business and in life is very important. And like David, you have the whole meta web of every one of these founders and how they're all connected. And by listening to you, I get to be right in the center of it. And you wouldn't have identified with Jorgensen's soundbox. No, like smart friends is not like double. It's not twice as good. That's like a 10, you know, it's 10 times, 20 times. At least. Good. The one thing I would say is that also, I think I understand why people one, when you put this up, I hope you don't do what these people do where like they put these clips on Twitter and they like zoom in on your face. I don't, everybody's copying that. <laughs> and I think that looks terrible. It's just like this fucking giant head coming at you. It's fucking talking. It's like, back up, buddy. Like, whoa, give me some space here. I'm going to take that clip and put it on Twitter immediately. <laughs> it just, uh, it's going to be like just your nose and your mouth. Especially doesn't work well for me because I got a giant fucking head. Um, but another thing I think that people are not focusing enough on is matching the medium, right? We're like, if you guys go look at my Twitter and you compare my follower count to the views I'm getting and the engagement I'm getting, like, dude, you're, all these podcasts produce interesting lines. They should be text, not just clips. And they just work so much better. Where it's like, I scroll through on Twitter, I never fucking sit and spend, I'm not gonna spend a minute and a half watching a clip on Twitter. That's not what I'm here for. But I would spend 30 seconds, 20 seconds reading a text. And this has happened multiple times where um, the CEO of Colossus is getting Matt Russell. I saw his tweet before I saw it in my podcast player where Patrick had, has this great interview with Doug Leone, who is the guy that built, helped build Sequoia, right? Into the massive business he is. And Doug has this line where he's like, I want you to know we were killers, not killers to make the most money, killers to get the job done. And like, you know, it was like a paragraph, maybe two paragraphs. And I respond, I was like, you just convinced me to, I was like, I want to, what, what is he talking about? Like, I want to know more about that. And I listened, I would have listened to the episode anyways, but like it prompted me to like do it sooner. You know, and I was like, oh shit, this is so good. Winds up listening to it twice. Then I talk about it on my podcast. So, you know what I mean? Like this, from one simple 
block of text, which matches why I'm here on Twitter to begin with. So Eric, you have a book coming out really, oh, really God. soon, right? Great transition. <laughs> Dude, I was laughing so hard listening uh, to I have nothing to add. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect, actually. How many inside Munger jokes were dropped during dinner? Were you guys just like nudging each other? Like, I have nothing to add. Was peanut brittle present? Did you break <laughs> out some peanut brittle and just start working? <laughs> I, dude, I, so when I flew into the airport, they have all the seized candies, like kiosks there. And I'm like, I should bring him peanut brittle. And I didn't. For, I, like, I don't know why I didn't. I was like, that would have been perfect. No, he talks just like that. Like in his wisdom is prevention. He takes these very complex words. This is why it's so important because like think about our own experience reading books or our listening to podcasts. You could spend 20 hours reading a book, an hour and a half listening to a podcast. You're going to remember a story or you're going to remember a line. Like, that's just how our brains work. And so the Charlie's gifted communication skills, he takes this unbelievably complex idea. You know, the idea of like, you have to know at least elementary pro- probability. If you don't, you go through life like a one man, one-legged man in an asking contest. You're never going to fucking forget that. And that's the whole point. He's got your attention. And then now he's got your attention. You can put that idea in your brain and that brain and it sits there and you can apply it to multiple different experiences. Like he's just a man. Like I still love him so much. I was just so impressed by him. It's so nice when you meet your heroes and they are exactly who you wanted them to be. Like that's a big I mean, da- sorting function, right? David said this a few times where he was talking about somebody who should remain nameless. And he said, the more I listen to that guy, the more it hurts my brain. The more I listen to Charlie Munger, the more I like Charlie Munger. You know, just the idea of these ideas are so distilled and so excellent. And he just has this proof of doing that for years versus there's some crazy ideas out there. Be careful. There's people that have massive audiences that the more you hear them speak, because then what happens is like, there's this like thing of audience capture where um, this whole discussion started like, oh, how did your life change in a year? And it's just like, you can't pay attention to that. Like, I like the climb. I don't care where the summit is. Every day, what I do today? I woke up, I worked out, and I read. And then when it got time for us to record, I sat down in front of my computer and we're going to record. And then when I'm done with this, I'm going to go back to reading. If I just fucking read these biographies every day for a few hours, and then once a week, I summarize ideas that were important to me that I like that may be valuable to you, and I do that I'll let the chips fall where they may. It's like when you get it caught up in this, oh, like there's more people listening now or there's more pressure. That I fucking record alone in a soundproof phone booth. There is no pressure. I'm talking to myself by myself, talking directly to the listener. It's this idea where you think like you're hot, like you're special. I'm not fucking special. These are not my ideas. The reason I said that to you, Mitchell, where you're like, the more I listen to that guy speak, the worse it got, is because this idea is like, you gotta constantly come up with new ideas. There's been like a hundred fucking billion humans that have lived. How fucking arrogant do you have to be to think that you're going to come up with new idea after new idea after new idea? You're lucky if in your entire existence, you come up with one very unique idea. I have come up with exactly zero my entire life. I don't need to. Like, you know how many lifetimes have lived out? I could just say, hey, that guy's really fucking smart. How did he build that company? He's Sam Walton spent 60 years in the retail industry. Like, he has direct connection with Millions and millions of customers. He's constantly being exposed to it. What is a chance that he spent 60 years being directly exposed to customers' desires and wishes, and he learned not one thing that is going to be valuable in my business? The probability of that, going back to Charlie Munger, is fucking zero. Zero. It's impossible that he learned nothing. And so that's why I, I see it's like, 
especially entrepreneurs, because like entrepreneurship has been now like almost synonymous with like technology. And it's like, dude, yes, I meet some founders that are building technology. They're very impressive. But I just like people that start and run businesses of all kinds. I don't care about that. And that is a much larger part of industry and the, just a sure way more amount of people than like this tiny, like we're all fucking obsessed going back to this dinner that really, this is what really bothered me. I went to this dinner and I didn't say anything. And I know yeah. a year or two ago. So the would. next day, David called at me and just yelled at me for 15 minutes and then hung up the phone. He's like, okay, I got to go read. <laughs> I was like, well, David, it was good to talk. He's like, oh, I just ran it at you. Sorry. Because <laughs> this is the thing. The whole thing was like, my investors say this, or this is what my investor wants me to do. Or this is like, no one's fucking mentioned their customer. Who gives a fuck about what your investor thinks? Like, focus on your customer. The best technology entrepreneur that is still living right now is Jeff Bezos. Go read his shareholder letters. I've read them three times. I just did another episode on him. He doesn't talk about his investors at all. He doesn't give a fuck about his investors. It's, I'm going to be obsessed with customers. We're going to be the most customer-centric company in the world. We're going to treat our customers the best. We're going to serve all their customers' needs. Go and search. They're all online. Go to Control F. And fucking tell me how many times he says customers compared to investors. So why are we sitting here for two hours talking about your brain dead idiot investors? They're not important. I bought Amazon stock and like it had to be 2012 or 2013 when they came out and they were just like, we're not going to run a profit. We're never going to run a profit. Don't even talk to me about profit. I don't care about profit. <laughs> we're building a business. And the stock sold off like 40%. And I was like, uh, Amazon's a pretty good company. We get like 15 <laughs> packages a week. Why well, don't buy a little bit of that? Like Jeff Bezos wouldn't say he doesn't care about his investors, but he's more concerned with building a business. He's smart enough to know that smart investors want the CEO to care more about the customer's and that that is the strictly dominant strategy, right? Like, and Bingo. Bezos is strong Bingo. enough and smart enough to have, as our friend Sam Hingy likes to say, the longest view in the room. Like, it's Bezos' job to tell different people to shut up and to focus on the thing that has the longest view. And that's being obsessive about delivering to customers and making sure that the customers know that, right? I went to dinner with this guy. This guy went to the podcast. He's got like $20 billion, He's an investor. He's got like $20 billion of assets under management. And... One of the founders that he invested in was also there who I absolutely loved. And now we've become friends. And he's like, I love this dude because he is crazily, he's just narrowly focused and obsessed about his one product, serving his customer the best. No one talked about there at that dinner. This is what my investor's advice gave me, or this is how much I should raise or any of this stuff. Dude, a business, the, the best description of a business, this is why I like, I'm extremely passionate about this, right? I'm trying to apply it to my own life. Where it's like the best description I've ever heard of what a business is came from Richard Branson. He goes, all a business is, is an idea that makes somebody else's life better. That's all I'm saying. It's like, dude, the entrepreneurship industry that I read like online does not match up at all with the biographies of history's greatest entrepreneurs. Like all I'm saying is like, why don't we shift and like those guys probably know a little bit more than these guys. Like, let's just, I'm going to bet on Rockefeller, Bezos. I just did a, an episode on Bernard Ono. I don't know how to pronounce his name. The guy from LVMH. I'm going to go with Sam Zell. I'm going to go with the Mungers. I'm going to go with the Buffets. I'm going to just going to go with those dudes. And if you want to read this 22-year-old who raised a bunch of money and his company is going to be sold for pennies two, three years from now, God bless you. I'm not interested in that. Time is the best filter. I'm going to go with the ideas that have been exposed for decade after decade to time and are still standing. So, Eric, you are a capital allocator. <laughs> We are not. How do you feel like 
There's new tools out there. It's arguable that the best way to go start a company is not to go raise $3 million at a $30 million valuation and start spending money and buying customers and hiring devs and and all that stuff. And we're seeing a lot of it. What do you think? Yeah, the connection that I was going to make there that I will also answer that question is that I think what's interesting between like our three actual businesses is like, they're all self-funded. It's easy for Mitchell to have alignment with his investors because he is the investor. Like it's all his cash going into whatever starts the next company. And I want to sort of talk through like with you what that looks like because you've spun up a new business like basically since we talked last that's bootstrapped, totally your own thing. And I think there's like a, I don't know if it's the narrative of venture capital or just like the fact that startups are kind of like sexy because they get headlines early, but like a lot more people are looking for venture funding than should actually be looking for venture funding. Like venture is supposed to be like crazy frontier technology that has no hope of being profitable for a long time, right? Like Cisco, Genentech, like early, early venture was like taking on technical uncertainty and risks. And then like the software sort of like software used to be really fucking expensive to start. And so like it used to fit in that category. And now it really doesn't anymore for the most part. And there's like, I don't know, I have a theory that, that I'm still trying to work through the like software investing and venture investing are actually like totally diverging and turning into separate things. Like venture has come to mean like software and it's, it's just no longer a precise word. Like there are companies that do need to start with a bunch of cash and have no expectations that they're going to turn profit for three years, five years. But a software company that could be earning money in month three, month six, should not be raising three out of 30. Like, especially now that AI has come out and the moat of those companies, like as they are brand new, is reducing rapidly, right? So I don't, that's all kind of in flight and very interesting. I live in Houston, Texas, and you know I'm at a kid's play date on the playground, and we're watching Silicon Valley Bank collapse. And I'm literally talking to these two oil traders, and they're kind of joking, but they're like, what has software really done in the last 20 years? Or what has technology really done in the last 20 years? I had Excel in 1997, and I still use Microsoft Excel to build models. And like, well, wait a minute. That's all they this, care this about. This conversation is <laughs> taking a weird turn. <laughs> I love it. but And I don't believe that, but that's the yeah, joke yeah. is like, I, no, I, they don't believe it. But the joke is like, really, a lot of software is a database and a front end, we capture data, we permutate it, and we give people a new outcome. That's like, to be clear, like, so there's an interview coming out, I think just after this episode with Sam Arbusman, who is like, I'm of two minds here, right? Like software is fucking wizardry. Like it's magic. Like the fact that software creates incredible amounts of value, the business dynamics are incredible, but I don't blame oil traders or any normal person for feeling like technology is not doing anything because it's so intangible, right? Like the people who lived for the previous hundred years saw physical miracle, literally like they never thought we'd fly, we flew. Never thought we'd leave the planet, went to the moon, supposedly. Like submarines, nuclear bombs, fucking all kinds of insane things that seemed physically impossible. And the sense of wonder that that creates when that happens in the physical world is just so much more tangible and real and palpable for people than like, yeah, your software has gotten better for 20 years. The value creation that's come from that is incredible. And the devices that we have are amazing. But like, we haven't seen the kind of technological innovation that we saw during the Industrial Revolution yet in our whatever 30-ish year old lifetimes, but we will. Like those are coming hot and heavy. And there's like this really exciting little corner of the internet that's working hard on that. And as 
capital allocators and venture investors, like we're trying to find those businesses. One, because their moats are going to be bigger. Two, because the impact on the world is going to be massively higher. Three, because like that's what the hard, exciting shit is, right? Like building nuclear reactors for cheaper, creating abundant energy, like automating construction so that you can get structures for like not millions and millions and increasing dollars and cost. Like there's so much exciting stuff. And I think we are, especially with AI is going to kick off this feedback loop that we're going to see like runaway innovation a lot more. And it's going to do some crazy stuff and blow some people's minds. And I think we'll see a recentering of venture towards like hard tech. I think we'll see a lot more people get excited about it as they see material, physical change in the real world. I can't wait to see Can what I happens, take the other honestly. side of the argument? I don't know Can what the I argument the is, but sure. Argument? Can't wait to find out. No, like you said, like, oh, we might see a recentering of venture to like hard tech. I think venture's just in, like obviously a form of investing. What is always going to be consistent is human behavior. It's like we're going to see a recentering into how can I make the most money with doing the least amount of work or the easiest way possible? And I think that just applies to human nature in general. I got to make something clear though. Uh, you guys said that we all have bootstrap businesses. I do have an announcement to make that's not true in my case anymore. You saw Mitchell's face. I sold the entire podcast to SoftBank. Oh, good. Oh, Thank okay. you. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, um, I hope you got, I hope I you got a generous though. valuation. <laughs> What's your earn out like? billion. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, no, I, hold on, I gotta be clear though. Like I don't actually care at all. Like, you know, one thing I'm not interested in, uh, in partaking in on the internet that, that I feel is a giant waste of time for a lot of entrepreneurs to do is like, they argue over like, should you bootstrap or should you raise money? It's just like, I don't think about that ever. I don't ever argue about it. My whole thing is that I want to make sure like I'm clear about what I'm saying. I think founders, should always be focused on the customer. I'm into people that build great shit for customers. That is the only thing I care about. I just went to LA the day before I met Charlie Munger. I met with my friend Alexis Rivas, who I uh, met to the podcast, and my friend John Coogan, who is now the EIR at Founders Fund. They're both venture technology advocates, techno optimists, you know what I mean? And Alexis, what he's trying to build, he like, Alexis, I love Alexis in the sense that he, like one of the things he said during our discussion, he goes, He's like, he's essentially going to be the Henry Ford of houses. He's like, it's his goal in life to build more houses than any other human has ever lived. He's got to raise money for that. My thing is I don't care about how much money he raised. I care. It's like, I got to see the product and like what the evolution of the product from the last time I saw it and the new factories and all this other stuff that makes perfect sense for him. I don't like all I care is about customers. That's all I'm saying is like when Mitchell, we were talking the other day and you know, it's like, there's all these like business models that people are doing that. Like if you have a podcast or you have a YouTube, you have Twitter like you own equity businesses, et cetera. He's like, you know, you could always just do a fund. And what I told him is it's like, yes, you can make money doing that. If you're passionate about investing, you should do that. I want to make a product. Like my product is the podcast. It's like, I don't want to have a fund because I'm not interested in it. I'm interested in making something that literally makes somebody's life better. And that's why I fucking work on the podcast seven days a week and I keep doing it because I know when I put these things out there, like these ideas will resonate and they'll have real world impact. So I just want to make clear. It's like, I don't care about bootstrap versus VC. I care about like what you're doing for the customer. And that's the only thing I care about. I think it's a good distinction. That's where it should start. All I'm saying is like, there are businesses that require capital to be raised and there are businesses that don't. And people should use as little capital as humanly possible because the simpler, the fewer stakeholders you have and the simpler your business is, the more likely it is to succeed. And I know there's a reason that Mitchell doesn't go raise money for each new investment he, or a new company he spins up and it's like because it makes it simpler and faster and easier well i mean 
I was starting better bookkeeping. Better bookkeeping is not nuclear vision. Like we're just trying to do a thing that's been done for a very, very, very long time. And we're trying to add benefits to the customer and we're trying to build a killer product. And it's going to be this small productized service. And the less money I raise, the less big it has to be for me to have it be a legitimate success for me. So that's how I think about it. But like, I went to a bunch of really, really smart people who I trust and I like, and I went to other smart people who I just got to meet. And I talked to A16Z, you know, I did the meetings and I did everything I could do. And it literally, I just said the adverse fact pattern of like, this business could be successful with 300 customers that pay $1,000 a month, right? And they're all like, yeah, it could be. And if you don't want to grow bigger than that, you really shouldn't take on investment because you'll have a bad time because we want you to be bigger than that. (laughs) And so, I mean, and I can be bigger than that, or this business can be a lot bigger than that, but it's just people, or if you called venture capital debt, which is what it is, people wouldn't be as excited to take it because it's debt. That's what I learned. Yeah. That's a very, I mean, you knew the destinations that you wanted and you want to keep your options open to have like, not a small business, like that's a big business, but that is not a if you raise venture capital specifically, and it's that scale, that's not a successful business. But if you don't raise capital, and you reach that same scale, it is a successful business. And there's all kinds of like new options in the middle for like raising small amounts of much more patient capital or like all that kind of stuff. But I think what you're doing is so smart in that just keeping it really, really simple and in the building this family of businesses that all sort of reinforce each other. I just had this thought, we just referenced earlier, like the revisionist element of history, you're reading the stories, you can't tell if they're really true, but you're looking for the idea or the principle behind it. I'm hearing you guys talk, right? And then thinking about the context of this, like the discussion, it's placed in like what you hear from other people, other entrepreneurs or other people that are that are interested in like business building, right? And all I could think of is like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Where I think one of the best traits of the super successful entrepreneurs is they are indifferent to the opinions of other people right? When Sam Walton has this thesis, he's like, I bet you there's probably a good amount of business out in these small towns. All the retailers are concentrated in the city. I can't go there because I'll just lose for competition. What if I, the thesis is, let me put up a Walmart after spending, you know, 15 years in retail in other forms. Let me bet that if I just compete on price, that people in these small towns will drive very far fucking distances to save money, right? No one else believed that. So Sam didn't go around like, hey, what do you think of this idea? He's like, I trust my own judgment. I'm going to reason for first principles and I'm going to test this hypothesis. Turns out that hypothesis was not only correct, it was correct to where it created the richest family in the fucking world, right? And so, and then I'm sitting here listening to this. I'm like, okay, well, who else is indifferent to the opinions of other people, right? Because like this idea where what's happening is people will have their way of wanting to do something. And it doesn't, like, in our domain, we're talking about business building. Do you raise money? Do you do software? Do you, whatever it is. It's like what religion you are, where you're going to live what team you should cheer for. Human nature is, hey, I am so insecure in my opinions, I need to try to spread them. So then the more people that agree with me, I feel better about that. I think the best entrepreneurs don't give a fuck. Like Bezos didn't give a fuck. What I did was I had this thesis and I went to the smartest people I could find who had what I thought was a incentive to talk me out of my thesis and then tried to get them to talk me out of it. And they didn't. So then I just 
kept moving. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying soliciting opinions of people you trust is the same thing as not caring what they say. Like, let me give you an example. Munger just did this speech. Frederick just tweeted about it where it's like the, the Henry Singleton CEO of Excellence Award. And this came out like, I think like a month or two ago. The video is excellent. Frederick's summary of it is excellent. But he talked about, he's like, Singleton, so the list of entrepreneurs that I've studied that are completely indifferent to the opinion of others and that trust their own judgment, right? They're going to take in information, but they're not, they don't need you to agree with them. They don't care if you agree with them, right? Singleton's got to be on that list. And Munger made the point where like when Singleton does these buybacks of Teledyne, things was happening in the 1960s, if I remember correctly, he's like, nobody was doing buybacks. So he's just like, oh, I, I trust my judgment. I'm going to do this. And then Munger makes the point in that presentation. He's like, oh, now everybody does buybacks, but they do it wrong. Singleton did it when the price was good. These guys, and Munger, you know, I think he said these idiots or something. These idiots do it when the price, after the price has already increased. And then he's like, that's the exact wrong time to do it. The book that I did, I think it's episode 286, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger speaking directly to you. I found the book because of Eric Jorgensen, so thank you very much. It's this excellent, excellent book. Maybe one of the best books I've ever read. It's called All I Want to Know is Where I'm Going to Die, So I'll Never Go There. Buffett and Munger, a study in simplicity and uncommon common sense. I just, while you guys are talking, I, I searched my Readwise for that book on my highlights with the word opinion. And this, I think, is demonstrating, it's like, if you see a bunch of founders online arguing with each other, they haven't done the work necessary to trust their own judgment. And he says, this is what Warren says, I would say if Charlie and I have any advantage, it's not because we're so smart. It's because we're rational and we very seldom let extraneous factors interfere with our thoughts. We do not let other people's opinion interfere. Later in the book, 40 pages later, Buffett again, we do not read other people's opinions. We want to think. We want to get the facts and then think. I never, this whole time, did I think, I'm going to put this out there and say, should I raise money for the podcast? Should I bootstrap it? Should I do this? It's just like, You're right. like shitting on Mitchell for like collecting information before he starts his no, business. No, I'm not shitting on him. And you did the, no, like, no, no, no. it's, it's no, coming no, no. off as shade. No, and I'm going to say the last episode we did was you doing the same thing, talking to all the other podcasters, figuring out that you shouldn't do a paid feed. Like we are no, all... No. Yeah, we learn from history, but like we are also consulting with like people who are in our field who are ahead of us and we learn from them. And I'm sure we disregard a good portion of the opinions, but like I'm not making this. If that's what you're hearing, then I'm not communicating clearly enough because that's not my intention. I would never, first of all, shit on Mitchell. That's not my (laughs) intention. My point being is that like soliciting information, like what Mitchell did, he took these meetings, he talked to smart people. That is obviously smart. Buffett and Munger do the same thing. They read, they're doing this form of reading, they're having phone calls. Saying when it comes to making the decision, I don't need people to agree with me to feel that I'm right. That's the distinction. Does that make more sense? Exactly. Exactly. Mitchell, I'm sure like of all the people that you talked to before you went into better bookkeeping, I'm sure a bunch of them would have pushed you in a ton of different directions, right? Like you're synthesizing all of these different inputs. I talked to a guy at Capital Camp and he's like, this is a stupid business. You're wasting your time. This is a productized service. No one's ever going to pay a high multiple for a productized service. And it's just like that. I don't want a high multiple. It doesn't matter because I'm not going to sell it. All it's going to do is you get 300 people, a thousand dollars a month, and it makes a million and a half dollars a year of EBITDA. Like it's simple. So like, why do I need a high multiple if that's the outcome? And then from there, you can iterate 15 different ways to make it a whole lot bigger. But yeah, I think ultimately Twitter and all of this kind of learn in public stuff is I'm sure some of it is trying to kind of affirm your opinions or quell your anxieties. But a lot of the smartest people out there just go say things that they don't totally even agree with to just 
get reaction from other smart people. And then, I mean, David gets reactions from some dumb people too. Some, some, <laughs> sometimes adjunct professors. Don't say it. Don't. Oh my God. <laughs> so, we have a new, we have a new saying, man, bless his heart. You know, you got to ignore people like this, but when Chris Powers put out that thing, it's like, Oh, you know, he's just trying to make the best thing possible. Something he like proud with, and he'll let the numbers fall where they may. The guy's like terrible mentality. He is terrible idea. That is a suboptimal mentality. And so now we have a meme where like, if you hear a bad idea, you're like, there's a suboptimal mentality. And it's just like, God bless suboptimal. you, man. Like, but like, that, your actions speak louder than words. Like you're not going to see me in a public forum going around and like, you're not going to be able to search David Sunder on YouTube and see me like leaving negative comments under somebody's YouTube page. Like it's just like, or sending a mean tweet. It's just like, dude, you're saying by your actions that you don't understand the value of your time because if you understood you have limited time you're gonna die one day you wouldn't spend your very precious limited time leaving comments like that's a stub up to mentality like that's loser shit elon putting the view count on the tweet has helped me so much because uh, whenever someone says really something nasty i'm like oh 27 people have seen this if i reply four thousand people will see it why would I ever reply to this? <laughs> like, what what will that do for me? Just just people, yeah, walk, a small walk away. Watching that guy be a dick, yeah. But you actually, it's funny though. That's a funny tweet. I'm like, that's hilarious. Don't do what you think is right. Run your business based on some optimal strategy that some random dude on Twitter picked for you. Like, okay. And, and then you, yeah, you look as like three three followers, like, and all his other tweets are shit too. Like, just being mean. You know, like, uh, One of the different. shit posters yesterday had posted something and Elon wrote the, the sideways crying laughing face on it. And he screenshotted him muting Elon's reply and he just wrote, nope. <laughs> and he's like, I don't, I'm not going to even invite Elon into my, uh, <laughs> my, tr- I don't need the amount of like brigading oh, yeah. that's going to come along with the Elon reply. He actually did mute it. It made me laugh. So. <laughs> So we still haven't touched on the businesses that you're building. Do you want to talk about, because I think we talked about the podcast enough. Do you want to talk about cost tag at all or no? Do you want to talk about the idea behind it? Because there's like a larger theme here or like, where do you want to go with this? Should we talk about how you went to dinner with Charlie Munger? It's funny. Like I'm very curious when, when the dust settles, like how much, how many more listeners I'm going to get out of that? Because uh, I just did this like three hour long podcast with David and Bev. He does. Coming up he does tonight. want to talk more about this. <laughs> Wind them up. <laughs> and, and that's the first thing they started with too. I'm like, Jesus Christ. This is going to get some legs, man. I love uh, it. I want to hear the starting conditions of RE cost seg. What is like the, yeah. So I, I own this accounting firm in Houston, Texas. We have like 13 people working here. I have a partner in this business and that's a pretty recent new development and it's not exactly finalized. But so like there's a constraint as to is how it, is big... It shopping? Yeah, it's SoftBank, eight billion. <laughs> it's a longer now, but so no, but like there is a a maximum size that I feel like I can grow a really high touch boutique accounting firm, and we have 150 clients, and I don't think I'm going to have 4,500 clients two years from now. Like it's just impractical to provide the level of service that I want to provide to the clients I have to be able to grow fast enough. And then I have 
60,000 Twitter followers. So there's this top of funnel and then there's this bottom of funnel of like 60,000, 150. And I'm like, man, I got to do something in the middle. That that was my mindset and the kind of problem I was solving is that I need information products. I need a productized service. I need something to sell to all of these people who, to, to your point, David, uh, like want to reciprocate value because I've just provided a bunch of value for free. And yeah, and like I have a thesis. I have trust and I have a thesis of like, my thesis is start a business, buy real estate, use the tax benefits of real estate to crush your income in your successful business, enjoy all the cash your business kicks off, pay no tax. So I'm trying to like implement this in my own life. I implement it in my client's life and I advise people on the internet to to do that. And so one of the businesses that I've always loved is this cost seg business. A cost segregation is this engineering study that real estate investors do the year they buy real estate so that they can accelerate depreciation and save a bunch on taxes. Really simple idea. There's a lot of people who do this business and do it well. But what I have is distribution. My partner in this business is Nick Huber, sweaty startup, and he has more distribution than all of us combined in that when he tweets stuff, he has a way of tweeting, of getting a lot of people to notice what he tweets and get hot and bothered. And he's he's willing um, to get crucified on the internet by everyone in the world. I think he enjoys it, by the way. (laughs) So willing, (laughs) willing is not even the, though the (laughs) characterization I would do. But so basically my wife, Melanie is the CEO of this business. We have a bunch of employees. We have employees onshore, employees offshore, and we built this system of how to basically build these studies at scale and do a really, really high quality job. But there's a few secrets. One is distribution, two is technology, and three is great employees. And we've stacked all those together and it crossed yesterday a million dollars in sales. And we started it, I think, really, we started working in earnest in like July of last year. So, and it's getting bigger every month. So, nine months. Yeah, this chart you shared is, is amazing. Where's the chart? I don't see it. In the notes that Mitchell and I have looked at that you haven't clearly, that are guiding David. our conversation. <laughs> oh, the, the what to talk about? You know, I like to see it all green, man. Just like, put on the mic, uh, let's go. So, I'm Mitchell, prepared. Mitchell, I want to know, what does day one look like when you spin up a new self-funded business? Like, you spent a few months, like, putting the pieces in place, I assume, like, talking to Nick, being sure that you had a distribution solution, like, with equity on day one. You spin up a bank account. Like, how much money do you put in? How do you, like, did you know Mel was going to run this before you really started it? Like, talk about putting the puzzle together. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way we did Ari Koseg, and then like, we have another one in the works called Tax Credit Hunter. That's a similar idea of running a playbook of doing R&D tax credits, ERC tax credits, 4-5-L tax credits, a, a lot of these tax credits that are available in real estate and to startup owners. The way we're starting that is different than the way we started Ari Koseg, where with Ari Koseg, it's me, Nick, and Dan. Dan is Nick's partner, and we get a domain name and we 
get a Twitter handle and we get a logo and we get a bank account and we have a lawyer draft up a really simple operating agreement. We put $40,000 in a bank account and we just start working. And Melanie came in pretty early on because it was going to be me and then we were going to hire somebody and then we were going to hire a CPA at first. And we just didn't find anybody who was the right fit. And Melanie was already working in my business and had kind of done a lot of these projects that we have this architecture in Baldridge of like, we have all these no-code tools. We have a client portal that we use. We have ways we invoice people. We have ways we do accounting. And like, we kind of ported a lot of that over into this business. So we already had this kind of like framework or system or operating system of, of how this business was going to work on the back end. And then Melanie hired three people and then we were working, we were building the model. We were building a lot of the kind of inner ways of how this business was going to work. And then we started talking about it, getting new client leads, selling business. And then we started hiring people like crazy. We're, we're at I think 26 people now in the business and we, we, in Costa, we hired right? no? in cost. Yeah. Okay. And I'm, you looking never at needed, the, I'm looking at never... the thing now. This is super <laughs> okay. impressive. Thank you. For and you never needed more than that 40 grand yep. to get started. Right. Yeah. We returned well, the 40. Sorry. Because we, he, Eric mentioned this, this graph. So it shows insane revenue growth, which is congratulations to you, by the way, but also, like you guys are doing really well controlling your costs. It's insane and profitable growth. Profitable from month two? Like, yeah. So to, what, how much do you have to burn down to? Or are you making money right away? Here, let me, I got to go into better bookkeeping and look. But we, I think we <laughs> returned the initial capital, I think somewhere like three or four months in. We returned all the money and then we went from there. Guys, this is a good list of questions, by the way. I like this. <laughs> oh, good. Thanks an for hour and, an, hour, an hour and a half into the podcast. So, yeah, we, Do you we remember, returned you remember all the that money text in you sent yesterday that you said looks really good, guys? That, that was the link. <laughs> this was what was in the link that you clearly didn't even click when you sent that. <laughs> looks great. No, I did. I saw the top. I saw the top where it's like David met Charlie Munger. <laughs> you saw the title of the document. <laughs> we were like, David met Charlie Munger, one and a half hours. <laughs> Okay, then we have like 40 other points to cover. <laughs> but so, so yeah, we spun it up. It became immediately profitable. I mean, we've paid $0 to acquire customers. We've sponsored a couple of conferences. And then, yeah, we, we've gotten to work. We've been able to control costs in the sense that we've built a model that scales. And really, over the last couple of months, we're working, working, working toward the tax deadline and trying to get a huge chunk of the workout. But then beyond that, we keep building these meta processes of like using scripts and using systems and, and refining and refining. That'll be the exact now. playbook for the next business. Yeah. And then we're, we're building an app around the whole process and system. Yeah. So something I'm curious about with, because this is a great example and it's something that David and I have talked about a bunch too. It's like, I think we will see, I think Nick is far ahead on this and you are too. We will see more and more and more like creators either being given equity in businesses from the beginning and relied on as the distribution solution or sold equity in businesses. And like we'll transition away from like, 
paper ad sponsorships and then affiliate deals and then like part long-term partnerships and then just like full owned equity. And this is something that Nick does amazingly well. He's done it with Support Shepherd. He's done it now with Coseg. But I'm curious what the arrangement looks like for lack of a better. I know you and Nick are really good friends and have high trust and stuff like that. But like, is there a certain expectation of like driving customers or sponsoring podcasts or like, is that a discussion or do you just kind of have like, we trust him to drive customers or we're all working to drive customers, but we know we have a kind of an ace up your sleeve. Like, uh, what does that look like? Sure. So David and I, I think with... both will like, may end up in some of these conversations or already be in some of these conversations too. Sure. So like when we're launching Tax Credit Hunter right now and the lawyer's drawing up the paperwork and we're talking about how we're going to start that. And we started the new business. Now we have a guy who works for the Cossack business, who is the manager level director of operations, subject matter expert that we, as soon as we got traction, we were like, holy shit, we need to hire a real, you know, yeah. operator who's done this for a while, who knows all the trade secrets of the business. And we are doing that with Tax Credit Hunter on the very front end. We're hiring a guy out of PricewaterhouseCoopers who's done R&D credits for Apple. You know nice. what I mean? Who's yeah, yeah. been doing R&D credits for billion dollar businesses. And he is our first hire. It, we're going to surround him with, it's going to be him and a sales coordinator type person and one VA type person. And we're just going to launch with the guy with the big salary off the bat because it's worth it. And frankly, we can fund the business to that level to go do that. But yeah, we will drop the systems and the processes. So back how to much, your question. How, how different is the initial funding requirement for a business like that? Like to start with like the senior operator in place, like 10x? No, it, it won't be. We put 40,000 into Ari Kosek. We'll probably put 60 into this. I, I mean, we will start to get traction quickly. And Frankly, if we need to capital call ourselves, we can do that because it's the same kind of structure that's moving forward into this. But like the way we started that business is we sent Nick's lawyer just kind of, I think I wrote it and it's just a memo and it's, here's the business. Here's how much capital we're going to start with. Here's the first hire. Here's the second and third hire. Here's what Nick does. Here's what Mitchell does. Here's what Dan does. Here's what Melanie does. Here's what employee number one does. And we kind of just wrote an investment of how the business is going to be set up, how it's going to be structured, whose responsibilities are what. And we just go from there and who's going to own what. And essentially the business is going to own a website and a Twitter account and eventually an email list. And we just go... How does a question like that, Eric, relate to the post that you wrote that's good for founders and bad for investors? What what made, like, why are those two things connected in your mind? Well, this is what's interesting about, like, Mitchell's question earlier, right? Like, compare, like, Mitchell and Nick starting a company, putting in 50 grand into a bank account, and, and building up the value of the equity from there. I don't know what you declare your, like, initial equity value to be when you're first putting capital in the business, but I'm sure it's, like, relatively small, right? And then it's everything the upside. cash, it's the cash yeah. you put in. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, like, that's it. Uh, and then a week in, it's something higher and six months in, it's something. And now you're nine months in, it's like, well, uh, equity value. The two months in, it was something lower. And then lower, yeah. three months in, it was something higher. You know, there was a, yeah. a J curve of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's like, 
founders do that in startups when they're doing it too, right? Like you put in fractions of a penny per share and the, the initial founding value of the business is really low. And that's why founders can do really well. But if you immediately go raise money at a five, 10, $20 million valuation for venture investors, like now that's the bar for success is like the equity value of that business. And so many, my most common answer to people who send me a deck or try to raise money is like, this is a great business, but like, not if you raise venture money, or probably not if you raise venture money, or raising venture money can change the nature of this business and make it bad for you, but definitely for investors, right? Like, you should be able to bootstrap this business or get it off the ground with a lot less money. And I think we're seeing interesting, like, like Tyler Tringus, the Calm Fund, right, is like funding specifically companies like this for people who can't put together the first, you know, 50, 100 grand or whatever is a very, which is partly what I mean when I say like separating software and, and venture investing. But that's why I wanted to sort of hear this story, because I think your alignment is so much better when you have like all the pieces that you need for a successful business on a founding team with the same equity, like exposure, with clear expectations of what each other wants. Like people lost the thread that that's how businesses are, like can get started, right? Like we don't all have to go fucking make a deck and raise a million dollars to start a company, especially a software company. Microsoft didn't. Paul Graham had one of the best tweets the other day where he's like, somebody asked, what's the biggest bootstrap company in history? And, and Paul's like, Microsoft. <laughs> and then people in the comments are like, they raised VC. And it's like, you don't understand the early history of Microsoft. They sold 990, almost a million shares for a million dollars. Like when they already had millions and millions in profit and millions and millions in the bank, they did that just to get the guy on their team. They, must they not never touched the cash. Business. Never. They, and there's a great bi- biography of the early days of... Uh, Bill Gates' life called Hard Drive. It's one of the best books I've, I've read because I'm obsessed with like the early life of the founder. And then the early goes, it ends right after Microsoft IPO. And they're like, we just took the million and put it on top of, he said, we just took the million and we put it with the rest of the millions that we had. <laughs> it's just like, they were unbelievably profitable. The year before they went, they IPO'd, I think they did 140 million in revenue and 38 million in profit. What did Bill Gates own when they IPO'd? I think like 40%, 45%, some, some crazy number like that. So, I mean, the other thing is like Ari Costa can be a pretty big business. Tax Credit Hunter can be a pretty big business. We are running a playbook out of Tax Credit Hunter, Tax Credit Hunter that somebody has already ran a couple of years ago that they raised $60 million and tried to acquire a bunch of customers. And it, it just never, I don't think they ever made $60 million of revenue. And it's just like, it's a simple business. There's no need to raise money. The reason that people raise money is because they have to go spend to acquire customers. Well, if you can build your own marketing machine or build your own distribution, you don't have to spend to acquire customers. And with no code tools and with AI and with all of this junk out there, you also don't have to spend millions of dollars to develop software. All the software is already developed. I mean, especially again, these are simple businesses. They're simple models. And then, you know, on Tax Credit Hunter, for example, like the issue is trust in the market. One of our big sales strategies is going to be selling on trust because there's a bunch of, you'll you'll get texts on your phone, you'll get emails out of nowhere about ERC credits, these employee retention credits, there's these kind of like mills out there doing a really bad job (laughs) for people because their incentive is to go sell you to go get the credit so they can get their percentage of the credit when you don't actually qualify for the credit because the credits are complicated and they will be long gone and you'll be holding the bag with 
a credit that you got that you never really were eligible for. So Better Bookkeeping has been software first. My partner in the business is a is a developer. He's the CTO of the business, you know, and that has been a much longer run because we've had to, I know yeah, it's build uh, a lot more stuff. <laughs> it's a sequel, you know, it's a Stripe and a SQL database and a front end, but it's been non-trivial to <laughs> like build up this whole business to be able to take the first customer. And it's taken a long time, but my idea with that is there's just, we can do a really good job of selling value that other businesses in a similar product category don't sell at all. And there's just massive lock-in and the price you pay versus the value you get as a customer can be, I mean, again, I want 300 people at $1,000 a month. I have two questions for you. Mitch, I have two questions for you listening to you speak. And the slog, it's almost like you're on two opposites ends of the spectrum. Better bookkeeping, way more of a slog than maybe even initially thought. Cost seg doing way better than you would probably, I don't think you thought. That's a slip and slide. Well. That's not a slog. Right? He's yeah. having fun with that <laughs> it's one. It's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, let's say that the order was reversed. You had the idea from cost seg first, right? You knew in the back of your mind that you wanted this productized, better bookkeeping thing. But do you think that if six months ago, cost seg was producing as much profit as it is now, would you have even still entertain the idea of doing better bookkeeping? Would that have affected your outlook at all? No, I, I think better bookkeeping is a business that can be 40 times bigger than cost seg can ever be. And I think... But not at 300 customers. Not at 300 customers. Not, you're not at 300 like, no, but it should scale really well, like, yeah. Yeah, that's your yeah. first thing where it's like... Because I've heard you say that a couple of times. I'm like, wait, it's, it could sound... We've had Just the addressable market is so big. It, it, you're not saying I'm going to get to 300 and stop. You're saying that's like the minimum. It's a successful business and then we'll scale from there, correct? Correct. But that is a, but the 300 customers is like a very successful That's a business. happy plateau. Yeah. And it's a very and you know attainable you can get thing that, yeah, by the end of this year, I can be well past 100 and, and end of the, by tax season of next year, we'll talk next April, I will be at 300 customers and it will be a good business. And then... That's the time you go raise capital. Shit. Or, you know, if you have an idea of how you can go raise $2 million, spend it and return it in a month and a half and reap the rewards forever, like that's how you think about capitalizing these businesses, you know? Why is better bookkeeping a better business long term than cost tech? Like, is it because the, the market's bigger? Like, large market. Let me back up. I have a weird question. Much more revenue per user, higher margin. Well, I don't know, higher margin, but. How would you kill Costeg? Costeg has a regulatory component that sits on the back of it. Of there's this thing called bonus depreciation. There's this thing called the deduction, which is a gift from Congress. <laughs> and you know, going down from there, there you know, we're in the like sweet spot of Costeg. Of in 2017, Tax Cuts Jobs Act gets passed. They allow. 100% bonus depreciation on used property, which just changes the game for how many people can use a cost egg. And that thing's sort of slowly unwinding in front of our eyes. It, I think it'll be extended. So they and, can change the law and then you don't have a business? Am I understanding Not that? that we don't have a business. We just, the market gets smaller and smaller and smaller as the law kind of 
as the juicy benefits of the law kind of retrace. Whereas, but a bookkeeping is never going to happen. Everyone's bookkeeping and tax prep. Yeah. And I have a secret sauce of these value levers that I can programmatically add on to the system I've built that allow me to deliver more value than my competitors and probably, frankly, have better margins in the sense that I've built a simple product for founders and solopreneurs that is really dialed in to a specific person who wants to derive a specific outcome. And the specific person is, I make 200, 500, a million dollars a year. So that's a narrow market. How many people make half a million dollars a year, but a lot more than 300. And I've built a business that can succeed with capturing a relatively small part of my distribution. And then I have a lot of ways that I can go to market with this thing. So I think it, time will tell. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we, we're going. David just wants to know when you're going to be able to sponsor his podcast. No, no, no. It's in one month. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's, that's hilarious. I do want to tie this back to, I think what we were talking about earlier too, because I'm sitting here while you're talking. Also, I had previously read uh, Eric's post, right? The one that related to why he was asking these questions. And we were even texting about this like a week or two ago. And I want to make sure I'm clear because I definitely wasn't communicating properly earlier. It's just like, you have a line in here, Eric, that I absolutely love. And it's what I texted you. And it says in your post, which is titled, uh, Good for Founders, Bad for Investors. You're like breaking down the difference of, you know, do you raise money? Do you not? Like, is it a good business standalone? Does it need venture capital to be a good business, et cetera, right? And you said, that's why VCs look for outright zealots, the kind of nutcase who will laugh at a $100 million offer and say, fuck your buyout, I'm coming for your whole industry. And what I was trying to explain last time is not that you don't go around asking other people's opinion or synthesizing information, whether it's reading, opinions of people you trust. It's like, that's the mentality. Like, it didn't matter if you thought Warren Buffett building a conglomerate a 38-year-old Warren Buffett, a 40-year-old Warren Buffett was a good idea. Like, he decided it was a good idea. That was like my point. It didn't matter if you thought it was weird that a 19-year-old Steve Jobs sells his Volkswagen van and takes that money and buys 100 and tries to make 150 of these like boards, these like primitive computers. He's like, he was going to do, he, they trusted their own judgment. What I see a lot is like entrepreneurs that haven't done the work yet to trust their own judgment, which is fine, right? But it's like, and then you're seeking approval from other people. All I'm saying is these people were not seeking your approval. If you had information that was valuable, they will get it out of you and it will just go into their own brain to figure out, okay, how does that information help me achieve this objective? So that I just want to make sure very clear, not don't go solicit opinions, just saying, Hey, fuck your ex. I'm coming for it all. Like I am so passionate and zealot for what I'm doing. And I believe in it with everything that I'm willing to dedicate my precious and limited life energy to seeing this thing created and live in the world. That was my point. That's what Mitchell's doing, I think. Like his big picture, he has that conviction. With every one of these businesses, we're building a foundation where ultimately with all of these businesses, what you do is you drive the price to zero and you you capture the whole industry and then you sell credit cards at the end or something. But, it, you know, like there's a guy, Patrick Campbell, who I've gotten to know and is a really smart guy, ran this business called Profit Well. It started as the good, better, best pricing model consulting service. 
And then he attached a, a data component onto the other side of it. He got everyone to s- shove in their Zora and their Stripe and their PayPal. And he started to aggregate everybody's data. And so he went from this, it, VCs would fund companies and then they would send them direct to Patrick to build their pricing model. And he would make 30 grand every time A16Z funded somebody. Two, he had 50,000 customers at the other end of it. They had a 100 million plus exit and he had bootstrapped it the whole way. And he went from a $30,000 product to a free product and grew this massive company through the whole life cycle. And I think better bookkeeping could definitely do that. You know, it could start as this kind of boutique wrapper and go all the way to where it becomes mint.com and it becomes a, a massive business. There's no reason why that shouldn't happen, frankly. Should we talk about Eric's book now? We got to go Eric, quick. I got a plane to coming out tomorrow. Right. <laughs> Where are you flying? Where are you going? I was going to visit some family. I was laughing so hard listening to our old, our previous episode because I was like, I had said six months ago that the book would be probably out in six months and it's not. It's <laughs> like I thought it would be out by now because I'm an optimistic, sweet, naive second time author who should know better. I think it's still <laughs> probably three months out, depending, but it should just takes a long time. The last, you know, it's one of those like last 10%, 90% of the work kind of things. So I said your book subject and friend and compatriot recently has made a pretty big bet. And I told the group chat, how much Bitcoin are we buying? And David said he only invests in one thing, Founders Podcast. (laughs) David, how much can you reasonably invest in Founders Podcast at this point? And how big can it be? And or David, don't say anything. Eric, so let's talk about your book. <laughs> no, no, no. I really, that's a really good question. And I want to hear David's answer to it. Because I, I think too. reinvesting in growth is like a thing that we're all thinking about how to do effectively and will be for a long time. And to your point, podcasting is not a super capital intensive business. So you got a big ass podcast and is now throwing off cash, like a, assume a lot of cash, enough that you're trying to figure out how to reinvest it into growth because the Founders Podcast, as you say, the only business, not the only business you ever want to own. Maybe maybe he has said that. I'm not sure he wants to be on the record. We'll see. The floor is yours. There's a larger thought here that, again, this is not my own idea. I've never come up with a unique idea in my life. And I don't care if I die, never coming up with a unique idea in my life. You just see this like, okay, so the biggest juxtaposition and contrast between fucking the books I read and the conversations I have with entrepreneurs is like, I read books about these insanely focused people and then I pop up and I go into the real life, real world where no one is focused on anything. So it's just like, not that you don't want to own equity in other businesses or investors, anything else. It's like Andrew Carnegie, when he was a young man, before he started his steel company, you know, he was building a bridge company. He was doing all these investments. He made the equivalent of like 10 million a year, right? This is before he's going to wind up building the largest liquid. When he sells his steel company to JP Morgan, he has the world's largest liquid fortune in cash, just chilling, right? And he says something that was just fascinating that people don't, this is something that Peter Thiel says, that people systematically undervalue their time, right? And their attention. Like you just give it away for free at all this useless shit. And so what I'm trying to do is like, learning to me is not memorizing information. Learning is changing behavior. So if, I don't, if I'm reading all these books and, and thinking about this intently and making a podcast about the history of entrepreneurship, and I'm not changing my behavior, that means it's, an, I'm, it's a big waste of time, right? And I'm not going to dedicate all my life energy into what I hope is my life's work and say, oh, this is a waste of time. And so what Andrew decided is like, hey, 
I'm sick of fucking like looking at the newspaper and looking at like the stock, like what, what's the stock doing this day? Or like, what's this investment in this private company worth? Or am I going to get my money back? And so he decided when he found his best opportunity, right? Not his second best, not his third best, not his fifth, his single best opportunity is like steel is clearly where I needed to devote all my attention, right? It's where it could be world-class at. It's, he was the be- literally had the best steel company in the world. He sold everything. Cause he's like, it's not that I'm worried about making money. It's I'm worried that my attention goes from priority number one, the sole priority to this other shit. Even if it's 30 minutes a day, an hour a week, that compounds, it's 50 hours in a year, 200 hours in four years that somebody else is not thinking about it. So when I say it's like, I want hundred, I want my family's wealth to be derived 100% of founders, right? From founders, because I don't want to focus on anything else. There's this great post I keep sending to fucking everybody. Apologies if I haven't said to you guys yet. We'll put it in the show notes. It's this guy named Joe Lonsdale, who I think was like the co-founder of Palantir with Peter Thiel. He wrote it a long time ago. It says in 2010, it's called Lessons from Peter Thiel, right? And it's like nine lessons. You can read it in five minutes. And there's a couple lines I just want to pull out here. Number, the, the second thing that he learned, this is the headline. Don't divide your attention. Focusing on one thing yields increasing returns for each unit of effort, this is going to sound, this is going to echo one of the most important things I read in your book, Eric, that when Naval says that being at the extreme of your art is very important in the age of leverage, right? Because power laws rule everything. Like, this is my assumption. If I can build the world's best podcast on history's greatest founders, I will capture more value than the second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth, fifteenth people that have done that. That's why I don't let myself think about anything else. So yeah, he goes, That's the power in law. This, yeah, hundred percent. So it's like in this thing where it's like this. This is what he says: at a macro level, understanding that applied effort has a convex output curve is a very useful discipline when considering new market areas. He's talking about what Peter taught him. This convexity means that the opportunity cost of transferring resources from existing projects to a new one is high. This is the punchline. Unless the new area is incredibly value valuable, anything we can do to extend and increase an existing. Anything we can do to extend an existing convex curve is worth so much more. When you talk to founders today, they'll be like, oh, I'm running this business, but I'm also running this business, and I'm running this business, and then I have a startup fund, and I'm doing all these other things. This is a conversation me and Eric, Eric actually like jarred me back into this intense focus on this hour and a half long conversation we were having at night. I think you were driving and I was walking when this happened, where it's like, oh, I started to do, as I got more and more opportunity because the, the scope of my work became more well-known. You get all this kind of weird, crazy inbound. And Eric's like, no, dude, you're doing it wrong. Ignore all that. Just keep working on the podcast. Do you remember this conversation? Yeah, because it's what you have told both of us a number of times. Like you, we, we have always like, admired your focus. And I was like, this is the first time I've ever heard you be unfocused. And I think it's just like you get pulled into all these crazy rooms and directions and given these wild opportunities and shown all these other paths that have been successful for other people. But to your point, like that's not the power law. And if, if superpower is your focus, then... And it was super, it was super helpful. You drawing me back. I'm like, no, dude, like that's not, you're making a mistake here. Like you need to get back on your path. So this is my whole thing is like what I told Mitchell yesterday about the fun thing. It's like, man, listen, I understand. I don't give a shit what other people do. I told you like rule number two that I teach my kids is mind your own business, right? If, if founders out there and they want to run 17 businesses, it's not my business. I don't care what other people do. I can't live their lives. If they said their primary motivation is taking a pile of money, and making it into a bigger pile of money, then by all means, go for it. 
I'm not saying this is the best economic opportunity for me. I'm saying when I tell you I want to make the world's greatest podcast about the history of history of entrepreneurs, I'm fucking serious. And I'm willing to direct all my attention and resources, financial or otherwise, to that one endeavor. And I think if I do that, I'll get everything I want out of life that I deserve. Will I be the richest person in the world? No, but I won't need for anything. And so that's what I mean. It's like, so if you're asking like physically, where do you put your money? Like I told you, I listened to Charlie Munger. What is Charlie like? This is another thing that came from the dinner, right? That he said, that's really fucking everybody underestimates. And he's like, we made a ton of money because we always had cash and we could move fast. And he was telling stories about literally getting a call on Saturday morning. Oh, you want this asset that you know is worth a couple billion dollars that's blowing up inside this other company? We need $450 million on Monday morning. And on Monday morning, Warren Buffett sent that wire without even a fucking, not even a contract, not an email. And he's like, oh yeah, we made you know a couple billion dollars on that deal. And so my whole thing is just like, what I should do right now is the audience, reinvest in growth as much as possible, and then just sit here and wait for a fat fucking pitch and a great opportunity. And that's better than putting it in index funds or any other thing I could do in my life. And so that's the way I'm thinking about this. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to keep, you can't really invest in a podcast other than like, there are certain things you could do, but like the reason they're such great businesses is because they almost, they have almost no expenses. Do you have anything to add, Eric? We have nothing to add. That's a good summary. An interesting thing. I'm excited for all of these sort of continued conversations. So David's so focused. Mitchell and I are blessed so. (laughs) But I I think also with like decent rationale for it. And it's just going to always be an interesting conversation. Because we're all building fun stuff. And I can't well, wait like, to see how it all unfolds. I mean, yeah, it's been fun to watch. David has these really, really strong ideas. I mean, you had as strong of an idea about keeping the podcast behind the paywall as anything. And then at some point it made sense to unwind that. I mean, frankly, I think you could hire a principal to go run a venture fund and you can make a shitload of money and it wouldn't take that much of your effort. And you should probably do that, but you know, stay poor, whatever. (laughs) 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 Can we, can we do have fun staying poor in 2023 or no? No, but I mean, he's going to go full Rogan and then just, and then just come back, bring you a a mixed clip of all the times you told him to get unfocused after his $500 million Spotify deal. He's, he's not wrong, <laughs> but but that also is come that that's also comes from studying history and like learning the benefit of learning from other people's experiences. It's like, man, I know that the standard, a very common theme is like like you, the more money you make, the happier you'll be. And I've read literally now hundreds of stories where it's just like that's not like Sam Walton was happy and proud that he built Walmart. The byproduct was a large fortune. He still. Is more important than him was large fortune was what he built and the the benefits that he gave to his customers. That's I don't think you're going to change human nature. That's my main thesis, and I know that if I just do things that I'm not interested in to make more money, I'm going to get to the end of my life and be like, "You idiot! You should have listened to the books that you were reading." And that's just something I've completely like saturated myself in that. There's going to be a, you're going to raise a bunch of LP money and you're going to hire the principal to run the fund. And one Saturday afternoon one of your investments is going to go totally to shit and you're going to be at a family picnic and have to like refocus your attention on this shitty portfolio company. Right. So part of that. Okay. So now if I raise a giant fund, right. Or whatever, and I I have a partner that that deploys the capital, whatever, it's like, 
nothing in my life gets better by just adding me being accountable to other people outside of my family. You know what I mean? Like, that's why, like, me and Eric have had these conversations over and over again. It's like, why the hell do you not have an editor? Why don't you have this? I don't even have an assistant. Like, why? Because that's a good filter. If if my if I have an assistant, that means my life has got so co- so much complicated that I have to like manage a schedule. But I just told you the only thing I need to do to ensure the success is read books and make podcasts. I don't need an assistant to read books and make podcasts. And if I now need assist, like right now, if you go through all my messages, yeah, like I'm sure there's unread emails, there's opportunities sitting there. But it's not reading books and making podcasts. That's another form of focus. I'm not disagreeing with the principles of what you guys are saying. I think you're probably right. I'm just saying that like these things, it's extremely important to me that I'm not accountable to anybody that there's nobody that can call me right now or say, Hey, there's nobody right now on the planet. Like I'm completely free. No one could call me and say, Hey, if you don't get on this phone with me, I'm not going to give you money or you're going to be in trouble. Like even if one of my advertisers said that, it's like, okay, I got a fucking line out the door, dude. Like I'm not dependent on that. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to trade anything that I want to do for money because I know what Ben Franklin said, like all that's important in life is time. That's what, that's the stuff life is made up of. And right now I like how I'm spending my time. If so many people pursue wealth because they need it to be free and then get enough money to be free and then immediately keep making decisions that make them unfree, like in order to get more money because they just lost that correlation. And I think, I mean, David, I think you're totally right. Like there's a huge piece that comes with not being accountable. Like I feel that and I change, I make those decisions and like sort of trade-offs all the time. I think that's a really interesting, like, important thing like you want control over your time all the time and you want like i want that control over my time in order to do the other thing that you're saying which is like pursue craft i want to make great podcasts i want to make great books to me investing is part of that craft because i'm interested in it i appreciate that you're not but like i love the feeling of that i work for the future and that i have been trusted to allocate like capital into entrepreneurs who are building things that will literally change the world and make lives better. Because I believe that technology is upstream of a lot of life improvements for all of humanity. And to me, that's like really, really exciting on the craft level. And I think of making those investments and assembling that portfolio as craft on the on the level of writing a great book that people love, or making a podcast that makes people like laugh and learn something and enjoy themselves. And the way you've selected everything, like you have potential Lollapalooza, using Charlie's term, you have potential Lollapalooza effects here because like the right, the book writing, the investing and the podcast all have like synergistic, like they can actually, like the sum of the parts is greater than the whole, right? But my point is like, what's fascinating to me is like, I am so confusing to other people where I am like so simple to myself. Like the conversations that I have is like, why don't you do this? Cause like, cause I like reading books and they're like, yeah, but do this. I was like, like I, to me, it's the most simple, my, like I'm not, dude, I promise you, like I am not, I, I internalize what Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett says. Like, I'm just trying to be consistently not dumb. I do not need people to think I'm brilliant at all. I just literally am such a simple person where it's just like, I like doing this. I'm going to continue doing it. And anything that's not it, I just won't do that. And when you tell that to people, they look at you like you're fucking, like you got three heads or like you're an alien. I was just like, <laughs> this makes perfect sense to me though. Yeah. I literally don't understand the, the reaction I get from other people. Mitchell, why are you laughing? Uh, I'm you laughing, laughing because the number one note at the top of the notes section was, guys, the last podcast we did was two and a half hours. Maybe we can tighten it up a little bit. That, that's what Eric said. <laughs> and yeah. then my wife walked in and she's like, are you still on that podcast? Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, Do you want to end on your last notes? Is everybody going to Capital Camp this year? 
Yeah. Eric? It, yeah. Yes. Hell yeah. Yeah. So, we're, so yeah, we'll um, see. I'll see you guys next at. I at think Apple Berkshire's Camp. off, Eric, but well, we will I, see. I just, if, got a, I just got an email. Is Berkshire back recording. on? <laughs> I mean, my only thing is like, if we wait till next year, like, he may not. we we may yeah. not. I'm Even going. Go it's just going to be a short trip. That's all I'm saying. Why can't you stay for two days? What if you like? I'm not going to go into that here. I'm get, like getting back from a trip late the night before. I can't do it. I'm just driving. What if like, we, it's what if we spill over to the next day? I maybe can stay okay. over, but I leave again on Monday. You're just a world traveling writer, investor, podcaster. Look at this guy. We'll, we'll pull it onto the. We'll pull it back um, to the text thread. Thread, but. Yeah, we're okay, all. I, I'll well, see you guys at Capital Camp for sure. That? You guys are getting together in Miami before that, right? You're flying in for that, bro. You're going everywhere else but here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to Miami. We're doing the Ari Kosseg team trip, but we're going to do it around the David Sinra Shane Parrish event, and then, dude, how did that happen, David? That sounds amazing. So I'll plug that real quick. I think it's April 18th. This might not even be out by then. Eric, what's your release schedule? It'll be out by then. It'll be about the week before. There you go. You got you to gotta listen to it fast. So Shane Parrish is coming to Miami. He suggested we do a meetup. And then we got together with what looks like right now, co-founder of Ramp and Founders Fund. And I think they're going to host it. We'll leave the email if you're interested. It's on Shane's website. But it looks like we're going to do like a Shane Parrish Founders Podcast, Miami Entrepreneurial like meetup event, which should be kind of fun. And Mitchell and his whole crew are uh, flying in too. So that's going to be cool. That's awesome. Very exciting. I wish I could be there. Dude, I like that you're branching out into live events. No, like this was, well, first of all, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> Second of all, it originally, like, it just became bigger than what it was going to be. We were just going to meet up with, like, you know, maybe like 50 people or something, whatever the number is, like some kind of like bar or restaurant. And then I just mentioned it to Kareem, who's a co founder of Ramp, and he's like, just have it at our building. Like, that's like, because if you go to Winwood, Miami, like, that's where like a lot of startups are, that's where a lot of investors are. So it just makes sense with the audiences that like Shane has and I have. That's awesome. That would be an amazing event. I'm excited for you guys. Start that world tour. <laughs> Only if you're Bro, coming with me. I'm there. Blue Oxford boys. Let's go. <laughs> we All did right, not guys. plan this. E- Eric did change, though. <laughs> I just I like well, it when we match for symmetry. It just seems organized. Thank you both. Thank you very much for inviting us back on. Thank you guys. This is awesome. Maybe we'll do a capital camp recap after we hang then. That'd be good cadence. Every time it happens, we say we need to do it more often. And I get more requests, honestly, for us to redo this than any other episode, which is hilarious and amazing. Because halfway through it, I'm always like, I can't believe people listen to this. <laughs> Can how dare you? I think the next one, given the current trajectory of Mitchell's businesses, should be a live recording at Mitchell's new Texas mansion. That, that's going to be it. In the pool. He'll have, a, he'll have a ranch. I'm going to have a pool with an island in the middle of it. So we'll, we'll do it on the island. We're well, going to have Johnny really there. If he starts wearing hats. Yeah. <laughs> An ask guys are the best man. <laughs> All right. Love All right. you guys later. Love you both. Thank you. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, you will also love my individual episodes with Mitchell. That's episode number 12 with David, episode number 41, where we dive into his history. It's an incredible story. And we have one previous group conversation. That's episode number 50. And if you like this vibe, you will like that one too. Invest alongside me and my partners in early stage startups at rolling.fun. Links to both are in the show notes. And if you haven't left a review for the show in your podcast player, please do it. It'll make me love you just a little bit more. Appreciate you. 
I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, go pay attention to it, get a part of it, get exposed to it. You're gonna make money along the way, you're gonna have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself, breathe deep, and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.